At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In 2019, the first Strange Realities Conference took place in Nashville, Tennessee. The pandemic and turmoil the following year could not stop 2020's conference from thriving in cyberspace as a live streaming event. Now, for 2021, the third annual Strange Realities Conference will combine these worlds into a paranormal hybrid event, live in person in Nashville and streaming online. Join us in exploring just how truly strange our reality can be with an interdimensional lineup of speakers presenting unique and intellectual perspectives on magic, mysteries, and the paranormal. Featuring Alan Greenfield, Dr. J. Michael Bennett, a.k.a. Dr. Future, Tim Banal, Soraya Ascath, Dr. Stephen Finley, Aaron Gullius, Amy Pachula, Brent Rains, Chris Ernst, Heather Mosher, Michael Hughes, Jose Herrera, Joshua Cutchin, Kiki Dombrowski, Nathan Isaac, P.D. Newman, Stephen Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, David Metcalf, Timothy Renner, Steve Stockton, and Ren Collier. Tickets available at StrangeRealitiesConference.com. It's going to be amazing. Okay, welcome to Conspiracy Normal, everybody. We, we, we've got a powerhouse right now, and I'm really looking forward to this one. Um, it's your host, Adam, in case you didn't know by now, episode what, don't 377 know, now at know. this point. Um, and Serfiel is here as well. I'm back. Yeah, he's back. Never truly left, but he's back. And we've got a powerhouse, like I said. Uh, Ren Collier is joining us to help out tonight. And but uh, the 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 man of the uh, of the hour is Doctor Future. We're bringing him back after a few months. Uh, How have you not lost your audience <laughs> after having me on so much as a fish out of water? They love you. You're almost our mascot by now. Yeah. I'm the I'm the Salmonex of Conspiracy Normal. Mm-hmm. They, if you have any sleep disorder, I immediately cure it. Yeah. I mean, you all have cool stuff. You mean you got cryptids and hominids and skinwalkers, and then there's me elongated my- skulls. Well, you talk about the real ghouls, so that's why mm-hmm. we like having you on. That part's true. Yes, you think any of that stuff is scary? Wait till we hear the characters you talk about. Yeah, you get to the real horror. So, what we're going to talk about tonight, um, and. This was total by coincidence. Hey, um, hey Adam. Hey, Adam, yeah. before you get into that, I hate to co-op things. I, I've been wanting to ask you about something to ask your old opinion before we merge into this. Sure. Did you all watch the launch of the, uh, uh, what was that, Earth One or Green Blue One by uh, Bezos? 
the phallus of Osiris. Yeah, right. Exactly. Did you all watch that? <laughs> no, I didn't watch it. No, I mean, I saw the pictures and stuff later, earlier, you know, later on. Yeah. I mean, it almost looked like a movie the way they had the cameras where it was like, it was really like if they would have filmed it, like for Apollo 13 or something, where the cameras were up in the air over the missile as it was taken off. And if somebody believed in stage stuff, boy, they would have gone wild with it. But the thing I wanted to get your comments on before we got into tonight's topic was, did you see any footage of the four people when they came out of the capsule after they had returned from space? No. I've seen a couple of pictures of like really glassy-eyed uh, Bezos. Yeah. The thing that I was just surprised y'all didn't talk about when I was watching it live and when the four of them came out, Bezos came out and his arms just started elongating real long. And the woman that was on there, it was like she was invisible and she had some kind of force field. But it got really weird when that when that young kid, I was he just erupted into flame and threw off. That's strange. And, and yeah. Bezos brother had that real rocky kind of skin. I didn't. Uh-huh. Yeah. They didn't pick up on the news wires. I didn't know if y'all had seen that or I think they call it the overview effect, right? Okay. I, I don't know. I just didn't know if it was normal or, or what, but it was just those four people returning from space. And yeah, I mean, that's, that's pretty fantastic. Yeah. You beat hey, me it to is it. Fantastic. <laughs> beat me to it. Yeah. All four were fantastic. Anyway, sorry about that. I yeah, just, any, anyway, uh, I thought maybe your audience may have picked up on that when I saw it. It was. And then but, there was this guy with a cloak and some kind of metal uh, armor on in the distance. I saw. Yeah, that was Richard. That was Richard Branson. Oh, OK. Got it. OK. <laughs> I would have guessed Elon. But so anyway, back back to the show. Well, OK. Uh, anyway, so did not plan this this way. But when I scheduled this episode with you, Dr. Future, um, today, as we're recording this on July 27th, now this show is obviously going to be out a couple of weeks after, or a little less, but um, this was the first day of the January 6th, I guess, committee, I guess they're not calling it a commission, um, that uh, the testimony today, so what the day they talked to the policeman uh, did they do another session or was it just a session in the morning? I don't. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I watched a good deal of it um, today. Um, they, I didn't watch like all the way through, but some of the, some of the testimony, um, I'm interested to see where this goes. Uh, I kind of understand today that the original plan, well, I guess what the Democrats wanted was they wanted like kind of an independent commission, kind of like, the 9-11 commission that was kind of like, you know, not, uh, not partisan. So for some reason that got struck down. So now I guess we have this, but you've had a long running, uh, series of, I think it's going to be ultimately be five parts. And we're going to kind of focus on the first two parts tonight about this and about the January 6th, um, I guess, insurrection, riot, whatever, it's called and we're going to talk about this so i guess really the first question for you we'll just kind of take it from there is why you wanted to write about this in particular you know what kind of made you want to give you the motivation to write about uh the january 6th right yeah you know um your audience i always feel intimidated when i come for your audience because they're very well briefed on things and I always feel like I probably know a lot less than they do about most stuff. 
and this is particularly one of those topics because they would have been aware of all this. The reason why I have to write stuff like this, that is historical stuff after the fact is that, um, the crowd where I live around and the part that I, you know, Bible belt culture, where I'm around people I'm with church community, they don't do the most due diligence research on things. Although they're predominant around here. I mean, they, control the the politicians we elect they control the culture that we live in here so it impacts me but the thing i always hear from them you know since january was that what talk radio told them was that antifa and leftist radicals were shown to be all the ones that ran the january 6th insurrection okay and they're still they still holding to that story You know, I have family members, very, very close acquaintances and friends that are still convinced because they were told that by somebody they trusted on the Internet or from the pulpit that that's who it is. And um, so I felt like always the onus is on me to go back and dig up all the stuff they're too lazy to do and give the best shot for them to come to their senses by painstakingly documenting all the information that would challenge that both the people before the event that were of a different persuasion that said that they were going to do certain things and then followed through and did them uh, the paper trail for all of those people and what they did all of the communities who not only admitted themselves were involved, but the ones who video evidence has proved who they are. And these were well-known people. This wasn't some stranger saying, well, that's Joe Smith. Uh, it's a well-known Joe Smith who's a celebrity and you can tell exactly anybody can, well, that's him. And then later, usually in court, he admits it. So, um, what I've tried to do is not only list the individuals who have outed themselves or otherwise, a lot of times their social media posts, but the organizations they were with everything that they did beforehand. And even when they bragged about it afterwards to show the, the foolishness of this position And really what it should do is to cause further justification to not trust the people who are telling them these lies. If these people are telling these kind of preposterous stories, what other kind of preposterous stories are they telling as well about COVID, about vaccines, about the election results and on and on and on? Because once you find someone is is obviously pulling your leg, why should you trust them about anything else? So. It was a it was an exercise in documenting some material that various parts of your audience are already well familiar with. But the, the thing about the Christian crowd I come from and all your listeners know, I, I sort of come from that upbringing, is that they're sort of new, most of them, to the whole conspiracy world thing. There have been some of them that were part of the era of the future quake time and some shows that are like mine that they're still around that sort of got into that started learning that kind of thing years ago, you know, maybe in 15 years ago, but the overwhelming population of people have become overnight conspiracy theorists with Facebook and other kind of sources that they found. They've suddenly become experts. So this whole idea, you know, they're part of the don't believe your eyes or the establishment, which is sometimes, you know, the right course, but they got their button stuck on that. And so they are really enamored with this concept of false flag events. Now, when, when I became familiarized with false flag events, and this is probably 
2006, 2007, if not sooner, it opened my eyes that there was a historical precedent that events that have happened were, were made to look like they were done by certain people that were out of favor to get enough support to take extreme actions against them, like the Reichstag fire, for example, and, and actions against the Jews. And this goes back through history. So it's a real thing. But what happens is this thing is so new and fresh to them, and they're so easily swayable that it becomes a, a permanent feature. And, and so what this series was, was to not only show the foolishness of applying this false flag thing to something that's so easily documented, but to also show that there's a real false flag deception about who was behind it trying to convince them of this. And that really doesn't start becoming more apparent until the later parts of this series. You, you see some of the politicians and some of the media figures earlier in this series that you start seeing are intentionally trying to deceive people from the overwhelming evidence. But at the end, it gets to be even deeper than that. So there's certainly false flag components, but nothing like most of the popular people are being told about where they're being led. And, and that's something that I guess we need to always be aware of in the future. When we have people that have some veneer of credibility that start saying, wait, 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 don't touch the conclusions. This is a false flag event. They may be right. But what they're saying themselves may be a false flag event themselves. And I know that can make you deep in the bowels of paranoia. But we always have to understand that all of those things are possibilities. So that's what this this was. The other point of this series was I wanted to document what really happened on that day before the events got lost and buried. Mm -hmm. Right. Because we're we're in a culture now where something a week ago, nobody remembers. We have so much stuff, you know, and now. I'm getting more and more familiar with the culture that gets all their news on something like this. And they're doing like this, looking for titles of things. And that's the degree of depth of how they absorb. I'm not speaking about present company here or most of your listeners, but that is what our culture is. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times these people can admit that they did something horrible and they don't worry about it because they know a month later, it will be forgotten. And they know a month later, they will become a celebrity. You know, look, look at a guy like a Roger Stone or later. I mean, even a uh, Richard Nixon before now, if you survive long enough and don't give up, you'll suddenly be embraced. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that would embrace Bill Cosby simply because he's just stuck around. You know, they've done that with uh, Woody Allen. They've done it with Roman Polanski and all these other people. So, but it's so extreme now that if somebody doesn't document all of this and believe me, what a tedious task, it's tedious enough to read it, much less write it. Um, but I felt like that was essential, including all of the references of names, dates, the amount of people, who were the people, what was the things that they were found with. Um, but I, my hope is that it can maybe dispel the big lie later. And so I'm still on this vain quest to try to convince uh, and, and hopefully other people can use this material, even if they know better that are listening, that they can use this to convince their deluded family and friends with some actual methodical evidence of proof. And, um, you know, it exposed them to investigative material beyond their little myopic media sources that they use. So the fact that it's written for me, even on my blog with all the references hyperlinked, they can go there and send it to their friends and family members that are still drinking the swill and just send the link to them. 
say, if you really want to know the truth, here it is, you know, go through the evidence and decide for yourself and leave it up to someone if they care enough to want to learn the truth. And we always know that's the real problem. Right. It's not the sake of whether information is. is out there to get to something. It's whether people care enough, you know, to want to do it. So uh, the first two parts, which is what you, you talked about covering here, I hope are not too boring to people, but it's, it's, it's really documenting the events we remember and gets in a, a little bit into some of the major groups and a little bit of background information that I think slipped under the radar for a lot of people about some motives of some people and some things that were said that weren't necessarily in the headlines. Um, but it gets much worse and darker in the last three portions when we just see how unethical the people are who are leading these people by the nose in the new media. And, um, well, I, I think Surfiel seen a little bit of that, hopefully in part four on how yeah. incredibly amoral certain people are in the media that absolutely know without any question, they're, they're not deluded. They have a vested interest in a stake in intentionally trying to repeatedly mislead people with their complete foreknowledge. That, that may not surprise yeah. most people, but it's when you look at it in its face, it's pretty ugly. And that fast news cycle uh, is what enables some of this. You kind of, in those parts we'll talk about maybe some other time, we'll probably touch on that stuff a little bit, but you talk about kind of this like this new ecosystem of these real fringe characters and news sources that uh, serve as these rumor mills and disinfo mills that are then able to be um, quoted by more mainstream media and political figures who can always backtrack. But these sources beneath the surface are really the ones engineering crazy ideas and total falsehoods. And, and it's not that just that these people are deceptive. When you get to know them a little bit, they're genuinely scary people personally scary people they're like if you've ever had somebody maybe who you dated at one time that suddenly started scaring you and you didn't know how to get away from them that kind of scary that's what some of these people are who have been invited even into the washington press corps at some time but these people are so unhinged that they really belong in some kind of institutional care but by the bizarre culture we're in now now that they're actually they have a forum to lead millions of people. Yeah, they're operatives, not really journalists. Right, right. And then the question comes, are they operating for somebody else? And and I get into a little bit of that in, in the brief time I spend with them. And I would love other people out there to dig further and find out who else these people are operating for. Because somebody is always writing the checks. And one of the guys we get into later in this discussion that we'll talk about is a guy by the name of Charlie Kirk who is the future of the conservative movement. I think everybody agrees with that. I don't know mm -hmm. how many people are familiar with him, but he was a guy who's doing the bidding. I mean, they found an 18 year old that the billionaires found somehow had a magnetic ability to bewitch people. He spoke at the rally in Arizona. A yeah. Nights ago. Yeah. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I think you're right. I think I did see him on there. Um, he's, he's groomed now to be the next Rush Limbaugh. He, is taken over at Salem Communications. Uh, and, uh, of course, we'll get into his Liberty University connection there, too. Isn't there always a Liberty University connection? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, to the point of having an honorary doctorate, even though he never set foot in any college. 
Let's start off, uh, Dr. Future, with talking about how we think that this was kind of all premeditated by Trump and his cronies and the people around him and kind of what lends that say that this wasn't just some random march to the to, it didn't just happen that this was kind of a pre-planned it was thing. a conspiracy yeah essentially yeah yeah it's i mean in hindsight after going through this material again sort of kamikaze style and and standing back and looking at it this really was the woodstock of the violent fringe because you had fellow travelers of very different backgrounds, but yet they had common. It's more like Woodstock 99. Yeah. yeah. They had common forceful, uh, violent, aggressive. Need I say fascistic uh, commonalities. And they came from all directions. There was a major Christian component. There was major. And like I say, uh, in the writing, you know, both Christian and Odin worshipers with a large proportion of being armed were drawn together in unison, even for the stop the steel rally, which was the catalyst that was used to gather these people. And they blended in seamlessly. Jesus saves flags along with Pepe, the frog flags and Odin's hammer and all this stuff was all merged together in their utopian dream, um, which would have been, Really, the message was no different than the Nuremberg rallies of, of an earlier generation. The power of force and the will to purify our blood and to maintain a society of pure traditionalism. And the, the Stop the Steel rally was really um, the catalyst that was used, on at least on top, to get everybody there. And there were congressmen who helped organize it. And the aggressive posture, uh, using all the violent language to, to do it with the express purpose of stopping our constitutional election process was all announced well in advance. And it, you have to remember, as I go through this, I'm not trying to rehash just stuff everybody knows, but to document that it is no secret who was involved in this because they did not do it secretively. They announced it out in the open. Yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I wrote at the beginning of this, if I could share this with you, some excerpts. I said, in the wake of the seditious Capitol insurrection on January 6th, in which the attendees merely followed the commands of the Republican, conservative, and, quote, Christian leaders at the nearby Stop the Steel rally minutes before to, quote, fight like hell, as President Trump told them to stop the lawful and normal constitutional election. Or as Rudy Giuliani said there at the same meeting, telling the audience clad in body armor, camouflage, helmets, and brandishing pikes, battering rams, and stun guns to publicly begin the phase of, quote, trial by combat to the cheers of the crowd. Or as Alabama Congressman O. Brooks stated, who defines himself as a fine Southern gentleman who doesn't even drink such a fine man, he, he wisely and circumspectly told the openly armed attendees with Camp Auschwitz shirts and Odin tattoos and battle gear standing before him to, quote, start kicking ass minutes before the barbarian rampage on the seat of government and the subsequent vandalism and widespread manslaughter of the outnumbered law enforcement. The keynote speaker and messianic figure who drew the thousands there 
uh, to be willing to commit acts of violence and murder and maybe sacrifice their own lives or freedom to come across the nation and, and from their white supremacist strongholds, claverns, compounds and churches was the recently defeated but ultimate sore loser, Donald Trump, who told the powder keg audience of enraged nativist, both Christian and Odin worshipers in unity, already on the edge that, quote, Mike Pence is going to have to come through for us. And if he does it, that will be a sad, sad day of our country. Now it's up to Congress to confront this assault. And after this, we're going to walk down. I'll be there with you. We're going to walk down. We're going to walk down. Anyone you want. But I think right there, we're going to walk down to the Capitol and we're going to cheer our brave senators and our congressmen and women. And we're probably not going to be cheering so much for some of them because you'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Now, note this at the end of his normally rambling long speech of scattershot grievances, he concludes as if to make sure the audience understands the purpose of this gathering and its agenda. He says, again, we fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. So so let's walk down Pennsylvania Avenue. Then exhibiting his typical bravery of being in the, quote, line of fire on behalf of the spellbound followers who would give their lives for him, much as he employed them to patriotically avoid wearing masks during the worst throes of the pandemic to show their loyalty to him, while anyone near him had to be carefully screened for the disease before near contact with him. And as his rally attendees had to assign accept waivers with their tickets not to sue the Trump campaign for contracting COVID under his no-mask event culture. The media cameras showed that immediately after he gave the speech at the Stop the Speech rally, after the assembled mob followed orders to march to the Capitol right behind their fearless leader, Trump discreetly slipped down behind the stage and into the security of his armored limousine (laughs) and secret service to be quickly whisked away to the secure Oval Office to watch the entertainment of his uh, loyal followers bludgeoning law enforcement killing and maiming and getting maimed themselves in life-threatening violence as he watched comfortably the spectacle. Did he order a Big Mac and fries while he was watching it? You know, I was thinking he was more on a Wendy's kick lately because <laughs> I thought he talked more about that, but obviously they had to be laid out and somebody has to get his diet Coke, Yeah, you know, <laughs> but, but that's what it became was, was a spectacle and He's true to form. And this is what happens with these guys. And, you know, as I say later in the writing here, it's not just Trump. You find that the head of Oath Keepers did the same thing. They spool up people, but they keep this plausible deniability by not being present on the scene. And I just want people, when they see these folk, to be thinking about a guy like Charles Manson. Charles Manson says, I didn't kill any of those people. You know, I was back at the Spawn Ranch. Why, Why would you say I was involved in any of that? And, and we all know better on that. But this is what demagogues do. They don't want to go down with their crowd. I mean, at least you have to give Jim Jones and uh, David Koresh a little bit of credit, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they didn't They didn't go down. You know, they went down with the ship. You know what I'm saying? Well, yeah. I mean, that makes me just, you know, lose the respect that I'd even have for my worst enemies with a lot of these people because they won't own up to what they did. Um they're not able to even capitalize on what they did because they have to have this like wink and nod mentality. 
And what really bothers me and worries me is that most of these people who are trying to follow this line, I don't know whether a lot of them really don't believe what happened happened as as much as they are actively participating in what they think they should do to further these aims. And it's to play this game and to pretend that uh, this didn't happen this way and that it was Antifa or whatever the line is. Like that's what, that's what I feel more than anything is that these people are actually just playing along what they think they're supposed to do to further these aims. Mm -hmm. They they participate in the gaslighting. Yeah. To, To add to that. I mean, the, the point of him walking away and saying, oh, he was going to be there. Because I watched the speech, actually, that day. I remember hearing him say, I'll be there with you. And I'm like thinking, yeah, right. You know, but before everything got serious. But, He's no Caesar. Yeah, like, you know, he, uh, yeah, I mean, they, they were, they were, I mean, I think the speculation is now that, you know, they were going to just basically use those people so that he could call the, he could invoke the Insurrection Act. Right. Yeah. He doesn't want to be around, or he didn't want to be around those people. He hates yeah. them. And then, and then, what would have happened had they actually, you know, gotten into Congress? Those policemen hadn't held, and they got into Congress and started executing Congress members, or what? You know, I mean, I think it would have turned the the if they would have turned the army on the might have turned the army on them and just slaughtered everybody. So those people were just dupes. I mean, they were just like they were, you know, they were they were tools. They were means to an end. That that ties into some like like you were talking about a lot of people schooling people up and then disappearing before the action happens. Um, like I've got my own theories about that, and we can get into that later in the show. Uh, but I think there's good reasons people like Enrique Tario sort of disappear before the riot starts. Right. Um, I think that uh, it, it's it should be a, a clue to who they work for but yeah we can we can get into that after i think you're probably going to cover the, the proud boy stuff since that's a big part of the first part of the article mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah of course the proud boys were busy uh providing the armed services for uh alex jones mm-hmm. um we we have the air of i believe what was it Publix, who actually paid for most of that event there and um uh, in- including money handed directly to alex jones and the Proud Boys, uh, you know, these are some things I'm mentioning early that um, we should all know, but we have to sort of think about the gravity of it and how quickly we move on. It, it would be like if Pearl Harbor happened last week, we would just move on this week. Like, well, that was so last week. We're on to other stuff, you know, or the Alamo. Well, the Alamo happened, you know, now, now we're on to some new headline. And that's sort of how this is being treated. But, you mm-hmm. know, when... Um, Trump received word and was asked by basically his staff, the um, the Republican head of the House, who was hunkered down in there to urgently intervene to try to save Mike Pence's life. Because we remember the gallows they built out there. They were going through the halls to look for Mike Pence and Nancy Pelosi, but they were going to hang Mike Pence. They all chanted to do that. His response, Trump's response was 90 minutes after that. And he finally, they were able to get him away from the TV long enough to send a, a text, which they were hoping would calm the situation of the Mortal Kombat, which was still going on. And so what he said to, to his followers by text in the rest of the world that he says, Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do 
what should have been done to protect our country and constitution, giving the states a chance to certify a correct set of facts, not the fraudulent or accurate ones, which they were asked to previously certify. USA demands the truth. So that was his intervention for his own and handpicked vice president when it was thought that they were within mere yeah. feet of being able to uh, get to him. I mean, he was still the person, you know, receiving the most up-to-date intelligence in the country while this was happening. He wasn't in the dark. He was yeah. glued to the TV set. And not only were they telling him that they were getting contacted by the people on the inside, but he was watching, you know, watching the people with American flags, uh, impaling the officers, them pouring into the halls, you know, the numbers they estimate so far were approximately 10,000 people made it past the police barricades were officially trespassing, went past police, 10,000, 10,000, 10,000 of that 800 of them made it in the Capitol, which is really not all that huge a building when you think about it in the halls and everything, but 800 is a lot of people that were not, you know, invited in as those hours went by roughly 150 policemen were brutally beaten and five people were eventually killed. Four of them were officers. We know the one woman was shot and now they're making her a martyr. Yeah. Trying like to get they into did the, in the com- beer hall. Into, push, huh? Yeah. Trying to get into the house chamber. Yeah. There were four people who died during the Capitol riots. The, there was one officer who died of a stroke a couple of days later. Right. Um, okay. Unrelated. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I, I mentioned the four officers. Uh, a couple of them died by, by self-inflicted means. Yeah. Two two officers committed suicide a little while after. Right. Which is pretty strange. And then we know Brian Sicknick. But yes. Sicknick of the died other, of stroke. Yeah. yeah. Of the other men, I mean, other uh, ones who were injured, you had men that were impaled. They had fingers cut off. They were burned. Uh, a couple of them had severe brain injuries. Now, the one gentleman who testified today in Congress, he was diagnosed. He had had a heart attack while they, they had drug him out into the crowd and were beating yeah. the tar out of him. He had a heart attack there. They repeatedly tased him. Uh, he had a brain injury. And, you know, several other things like that. So this was the thing that they're saying now was just um, them strolling through the building. Mm -hmm. This is how it's packaged now. They were just peacefully strolling through the building. One of the congressmen who who said it was really just like a tour group. It was no different than a tour group that went through. But almost immediately footage appeared of him being one of the ones barricading the doors to the house chambers. And, and he was here. He was barricading the doors and immediately after this. He's telling everybody, I didn't see anything that was a problem. It just looked like a tour group. This is the the insane gaslighting that we have at least half of the country willing to tolerate, uh, including people that reverse their positions within 24 hours of what happened. Um, so that the acting ch- uh, chief of the Capitol Police, like I said, said that over 10,000 people had invaded the Capitol grounds. Um, and I think the last I counted, there was something like 540 of the people have been arrested. I believe, I believe and indicted my original data. It was about 250 when I first wrote this, 
but I think we're now up to 540 people who have been identified and arrested. I mentioned this later in my notes. This is information that just came out today. 70% of those people that were severe enough that they did something that was significant enough for major charges, 70% of those have been released and are not even being held. Hmm. Whereas for other federal offenses, I think 25% of people are released on bond. Well, but for these, you know, against an insurrection against our government, 70% of the people have been released, yeah. uh, even though they've been indicted. Well, uh, I'm not trying to play devil's advocate here, but how I'm just asking a question and like, how much can we trust the numbers given by Capitol Police is considering what they did with, with Sicknick's death, right? Like, they claimed that Sicknick had been hit in the head with a fire extinguisher, and that's what killed him. That apparently right. was just made up completely. He had uh, the coroner's report when he died, um, found no internal or external injuries at all on his body. So that story was just completely made up. And you saw the narrative of him being painted as like a martyr and a patriot himself by that side, right? And it's like, I see stuff like that. And it makes me like, yeah. well, Capitol police were willing to just completely lie about this man's death and use him as a martyr figure for their purposes. Like how much can I trust the information yeah. that they were giving us? Well, I, I think this, the senior Capitol police at a minimum should be held accountable for their lack of preparation for this event. Yeah. I mean, they betrayed their the own position. officers and they ignored the FBI reports that had been warning about all of these groups that had said they were bringing arms and were coming for violence. Yeah. So, so they've got even bigger things to account for. Plus, I remember seeing footage of one of the police officers waving guys through. Yeah. There's well, a lot of know, stuff going so on. I think the that there was, I think there was some sympathy. Yeah. Trump, Trump, is, Trump is qu- has been quoting that when they recently interviewed him for this new book out. He said, but, but here's what happens. He said, well, these people waved all of them in. They waved all of it in there. Now, what they have discovered so far is there were two individuals that they have uh, suspended at the time I wrote this one for taking selfies with the people. And, you know, there's going to be people in there that are sympathetic and there's going to because there were other law enforcement people that were part of the crowd. Furthermore, there were 20 percent of the people that were indicted that were military members. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it doesn't surprise that there would be sympathetic people on the white house grounds, except you would think, Hey, these guys are posing a threat to you. I think what they thought right. was all of the white house police and the military would suddenly turn and we become sympathetic to the bravery of these people who were breaking into the Capitol. They thought that would happen. But at the time I wrote this, there were two that were suspended, one for taking selfies with them, another one who was waving them in. Although at the time they said there were 17 more White House policemen that were under investigation at the time. Yeah. So yeah, I can't it, speak and say how many more of those or even more than there that. There's a Secret Service agent, I think, as well, who was yeah. right, right, posting it, on social media about it. And, right. You know, I think that there's some elements, like you mentioned, the Capitol Police sort of uh, command structure not taking it seriously but i think it, it, i'll go into this a little later but i think there's even some more there and like they didn't even provide a lot of the officers like helmets for instance right and 
you know, uh, I'll, I'll get into this a little later, but I went through the Minneapolis riots up here and saw mm-hmm. firsthand what police are capable of up here um, when right. they be. Right. And most police forces, even in rural places in America, are decked out in army military gear. Yeah. So the fact that these that the police force in what is supposed to be the heart of the American empire, you know, the most important city in America didn't have the right equipment on the day that this known event was happening. Just it, it's very, very suspicious to me. All right. What do we know about the two, the, the two that committed suicide? See, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. That's what's that's again, it's like a very, coincidental that they just all of a sudden committed suicide out of nowhere a few days after. And as I've tried looking for more information on those two men and I can't really find much, you know, it, I can't yeah. even figure out like uh, how they committed suicide. Even that information mm-hmm. isn't public. So I'm not surprised you all would be interested in that because yeah, that piqued my attention to, to know more. What were the triggers? Now I would say that, that the trauma of that kind of event Mm-hmm. particularly someone's not expecting you're getting ready to go into war. You maybe at least get a feeling the day before the battlefield to prepare yourself. Right. I don't know if similar things like that happen on the day of nine one one, where yeah. you had some officers had do some simple things. I can't answer that, yeah. you know, because they were just not mentally geared to be ready for that. But uh, Ren, what I, what I think you're insinuating is that incompetence may not be the sole justification for what we saw for lack of preparation. Yeah, I can't dismiss that. I can't do it. And I think that now we should never underestimate the incompetence of our leadership, (laughs) but that doesn't answer it as the only plausible answer for it, too, or or a mixture of it. Because and really, you know, as I get later into this work and show about how many of the not only policemen and law enforcement nationwide, but military and I don't want to disparage either law enforcement or military because the majority of them are fine, decent, and in fact, in many times, more compassionate than the average public in many respects. But there is an element. There is an element and maybe even a hair larger than the public proportionally because they have weaponry and they have other kind of things that's going to attract a certain element within the broader population of them, Hmm. that when you see that, and then you even see a large portion of national politicians, you have city leaders and city, you know, uh, uh, sheriffs and other people around the country that were part of this group. And so it starts to feel like um, almost like a body, you know, invasion of the body snatchers thing amongst us. Like how many of these people that we know around us in these institutions we've trusted have a subset that either could be powder kegs and could be switched off at a moment's notice to become berserkers or all along have these sympathies and are doing things on the side. Now, I think you all have studied enough and know that within the military and other groups, there are occult subgroups Hmm. that try to get into groups like special forces and things that do kind of weird rituals when they do these things. And again, I'm not trying to besmirch the entire group. Well, we, we talked about with William Ramsey about the order of nine angles and that had some influence in the military. Yeah. Right. So these people would also be interspersed. I mean, we already have sympathetic Congress people to this. We had a sitting president sympathetic. So (laughs) does it really, you know, blow, uh, blow our minds to think that people within the upper 
Capitol Hill police people would have sympathies. Yeah. And you also just have like a continued and systematic infiltration of police departments around the country by white supremacist groups. That's been going on since the 60s, at least, you know, right. I mean, every now and then you see it, it rear its head. I remember uh, in Philadelphia a couple of years ago, there was a picture taken of some cop there who was, you know, beating somebody during a riot. And he had uh, the double lightning bolts tattooed on his arm. Well, you know, Ren, you mentioned uh, Minneapolis. I mean, have they ever figured out, you remember that footage of the, of the cop just going over there and pretty much starting a riot by breaking the windows and leaving? I mean, have oh, they yeah, ever they figured out what that was all about? Right. You know? No, I mean, yeah, that, that was, was weird. weird. Yeah, so the, he he set fire to the auto zone. Um, I'm sort of breaking windows in the auto zone and set it on fire. And yeah, he just kind of showed up out of nowhere, did that, and then left. Right. And it was a guy who he wasn't, nobody knew if he was a cop or not. He was dressed in like all black, black hoodie and stuff, but he didn't appear to be part of the protests. Right. So either he was. And I think I think after it, there was a lot of people like trying to figure out his identity. And there were some people that said, oh, he well, he looked like this guy who was an ex-cop. And some lady said that, yeah, that was my ex-husband or something. But I, I, remember I don't that, think there was right. anything conclusive. Right. It, right. It just kind of went away after that. You didn't hear anything about it afterwards. Well, I, I remember that. But, you know, that I think was that at Ferguson where that happened. That was Minneapolis. No, that was in Minneapolis. Year, oh, Minneapolis. Yeah. OK. Well, Ferguson, you know, one of the first ones that really got out of hand like that since we're on this topic it brought up a whole other way in which those institutions can be complicit in something dark but mm-hmm. but not by their overt acts but by their lack of action because i remember at ferguson with all the protests now heated it was over that that death uh at the hands of the police and the verdict I remember they had so many special force SWAT guys there, like sort of like Ren was getting at. I mean, they really are abundant because we've militarized our police all the way down to like local community groups now. And I, I, I remember seeing at least a hundred or a couple hundred from all over Missouri and outside of Missouri that were there, which ostensibly would be more than enough to keep law and order and protect the businesses down there where they were protesting. But they were all centered around the police chief's house. Mm-hmm. And rather than being dispersed and protecting the areas where the protesters were, they, they were like 12 deep surrounding the house of the police chief. And, and they had cameras back there on TV. And you would see the ones in the back laughing and joking and carrying on. Meanwhile, the city's being burned mere blocks down the street. Mm-hmm. And I saw video of one of those stores, uh, uh, like super supermarket store nearby, and, and some of the crowd showed up, and there were policemen already there. And once the crowd showed up, the policemen got in their squad car and left. And, so, of course, they vandalized the building. Now, that really, when I, when I go between that and other po- statements I heard at the time from police, it really gives me the feeling that there are certain elements there in the leadership that would sort of like things to get out of hand because they yeah. want to show how barbaric these people are. And if somehow they can either provoke them to do it or provide a right environment for the wrong crowd to, to go, knowing they're not going to be molested, that is sort of an agent's provocateur technique in its own way. Yeah, and it just plays into, I mean, what is the first thing that people went to to defend what happened at the Capitol? The first thing was, oh, well, the riots of summer and Black Lives Matter, the very first talking point they go to. 
you know, could it have even uh, happened the way that it did without that? I don't know. There's definitely a, a dance going on. I've got a little piece about this in my notes that I wrote for the show. Um, it was kind of further in, so it's referencing some stuff that I wrote before. But my big question around the Capitol riots was, like, why the light touch response to it? Um, because, you know, I live in Minneapolis. I live down the street from the third precinct. You know, like, last summer was really crazy. And I personally saw and participated in protests there and saw what police were capable of, right? I saw them shoot chemical weapons at people, uh, shooting less lethal munitions at lethally close distances, aiming specifically for people's eyes and faces. Like you can just look up and see the number of people who had their eyes shot out at protests uh, last summer. And it just, it just begs a question. So why were the Capitol police police in the heart of the American empire, such pushovers? Why, why were they, taking it so easy on these people who were, you know, frankly, a large, larger threat than BLM protesters in Minneapolis protesting, you know, because I, I saw over and over again what would happen at these protests. I was there when it would happen is there would be people peacefully protesting and then the police would start shooting and then people would get mad because the police were shooting at them and then they would respond and they'd get angry. So they would always be provoked in some way. And, you know, I saw this happen with the third precinct. Um, it was allowed to be burned down. There's no reason the police couldn't have held the third precinct, right? None of the protesters had weapons or anything like that. They had huge fences around the third precinct. There were tons of police everywhere where I was. And I, they pulled out and they let it get burned down because, it. you know, it just... I don't understand why the Capitol Police were trampled by a bunch of live action role players and guys who were one Big Mac away from a stroke. Because let's not forget that two of the guys who died, two of the protesters who died at the Capitol riots just had heart attacks. They just, their hearts just gave out. Right. You know, these were not, I mean, I used the word barbarians earlier. (laughs) It's a little hyperbolic because I don't really feel like these were the, you know, Gaul's finest. And I saw that there were only 13 arrests initially you know, during the actual riots. And that is really astonishing to me because I saw at almost every protest here last summer, police kettling people in and making hundreds of arrests every day, every protest. So that, that is what causes me to be really suspicious about the Capitol riots, right? Like, cause I get into this um, earlier in my notes where I was talking about Enrique Tario, who's, you know, sort of, he was the quote unquote leader of the proud boys he and the proud boys were major um, were major instigators and planners of the Capitol riots, right? They were the ones who had had done a lot of the organization to get people there. Mm -hmm. And it recently came out that Enrique Tario has been, was an FBI informant asset Mm -hmm. since 2012. Right. 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 So I can't, I mean, frankly, it looks to me like the Capitol riots were planned and executed by the FBI using one of their assets to create the entire plan. Um, and I think his misdemeanor charge right before the riots was a way of extracting him from the situation yeah. or he could actually participate. Right. So they just book him on this minor charge and he's like, Oh, sorry guys, I can't make it to the riots today. Mm-hmm. I, I got booked up because I burned a BLM sign. Mm-hmm. And you, you see this too uh, with, I was, I've been following up on the Gretchen Whitmer, Michigan governor kidnapping case. 
And you look at that case and there's more informants in that case than there are like perpetrators. Yeah. They're asking whether it would have even happened uh, the way it did without those. Yeah, points. I mean, that's, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think would it have happened the same way if it hadn't been directed to happen in the way it did? Mm-hmm. Uh, because when I look at the Capitol riots, what I see is a honeypot. I see a way to lure in a bunch of people who are dumb enough to actually attempt anything approaching an insurrection. And that it also, as a bonus, provides an extremely tidy narrative to use in the public view ahead of the new administration, um, reinforces party divides and demonizes the outgoing administration in public's eyes. Um, and we know that Trump had a really contentious relationship with the FBI. So, I mean, maybe it's conspiratorial of me to think this way or paranoid of me to think this way, but I can't help but think that this whole thing was planned and allowed to happen because, you know, the FBI knew, I think, to a minute detail, every single thing that was going to happen because they completely infiltrated the people who were organizing it, right? They knew all their plans. The Capitol Police knew, or at least their command knew what was going to happen. And I think a lot of the, the strange things you see in, in terms of how the police responded to it are indicative to me of it being allowed to happen the way it did. Well, I mean, I think it could just as easily be if there is that FBI component, then could this be FBI people? Could this be FBI people that are that are sympathetic to Trump? Could it just be as easily as that? That you know that there's a division within the FBI. I mean, I, you know, I think when we talk about all these broad brushes with some of these intelligence agencies, yeah, you can have that chaos factor where there's different factions, and one faction goes against the other, and they use their assets. And they may, I mean, I don't think the whole FBI, I mean, yeah, in general, the FBI was pretty inimical to Trump, but there may be others that were supportive of him that you could look at it that way too. Yeah. And and probably I, I kind of sort of missed this in my, my rant there, but um, I also think it wasn't just one group planning it, right? right? Like, I think you have, you have, you know, my theory that the FBI is basically, you know, using their proud boy assets to organize one part of this protest. But I think there's other figures too, like doc future talks about in his great articles. Like there, there are other figures involved that I don't think have anything to do with the FBI or any of my sort of conspiratorial idea. I think there's multiple factions that are all trying to use this event to their advantage or to put forth, you know, either, either the grifters or their operators, but I think every, there's a lot of different hands. <laughs> yeah, it was a great convergence. Of yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of yeah, different hands. And say Woodstock, like I say, a Woodstock, <laughs> where where everybody has their own agenda that they want to bring to it, and they can overlay it. And you know, Ren, there were so many things you said in there. I can't even remember all the comments I wanted to make on what you said on. <laughs> I mean, the implications of them, you know, because um, I think to be open-minded, like I know you are. You have to consider all those things like like you're saying, the potential as far as the entire FBI being behind it. One thing that that complicates that for me is that it's like, as I show in here, was reported widely in the media. Mm -hmm. The FBI laid all this out in advance Mm -hmm. to authorities that was going that it was going on Mm -hmm. and it was disseminated widely enough that it was not going to be something kept quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't something that it, they were, were keeping under wraps. They had disseminated that to enough hands in the government. Now, why the people didn't respond to it, mm-hmm. like, for example, the 
the the you know the White House, the police, and others. Um, that to me is is more murky, is because that information we see was widely disseminated, and there's enough people that got it that said, "Yep, we were told this and this and this were likely to happen." So yeah. you know, I maybe lean a little bit more toward Adam is that there's a sympathetic subset that that comes in within this, but I but I think the picture that you show that emerges about what their agenda, even if it was a subset of the FBI that would have assisted in this happening is pretty frightening. Um, I don't know if they would have a reason necessarily to take down Trump or not, because most of them I think are pretty sympathetic to it. And and it's a little hard for me to see fully what they would be accomplishing when they're doing that. But I do know that, that, as you mentioned, he was a, um, he was an asset and so were others. And, in my Holy War Chronicles books that I haven't published yet, I go into the history of those kind of assets. For example, the uh, the gentleman, I'm trying to remember his name. It's Wang, I believe. I think he's an Asian gentleman. That was the one of three that organized the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. And he was the one who always wanted to bring weapons involved in every operation. He had mm-hmm. stockpiles of weapons he could get to always use that as the answer to the Black Panthers. You know, they were trying to do school lunches for kids mm-hmm. in the inner city and things or breakfast, excuse me. Mm-hmm. And, and then it came out years later while I'm writing that book series that he had been an informant from day one. Yeah. So from the, over, right. Yeah. So the, from the founding of the black Panthers, he was a provocateur, you know, sort of a COINTELPRO kind of guy to do that. And all of these groups had that you had the secret army organization, which was a paramilitary group that was shooting, uh, pro peace, uh, uh, college professors mm-hmm. like they did in San Diego when they, when they shot the one and inadvertently got caught. And when they got caught, they squealed and said that they were working for an FBI handler and they didn't believe them at first. And, you know, and I had to find this old data through a, a university and some professors that had archived this information court record and in the LA times and so they fingered the FBI agent that was their handler and they went, the authorities went to the guy's house and found the murder weapon mm-hmm. and the agent confessed that they were running through this paramilitary group an FBI operation to take out peace protesters, including bombings of theaters and things like that. Mm-hmm. Also involved Don Segretti, who was uh, the dirty tricks guy for the uh, uh, Nixon uh, Watergate uh, cabinet. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was the guy who was also involved in them. To the point when it was discovered in court, mm-hmm. in the court records, that they were planning to dress up as Vietnam veterans against the war and to actually um, start shooting the delegates at the 1972 Republican Convention in San Diego. Wow. And they even had bombs they had built and were planted to go inside the convention. This came out in court record trial that they were going to bomb and shoot them under the dress of, of these Vietnam veterans against the war, which led them two weeks before the Republican convention to move it all the way to Miami beach. Mm-hmm. Then when they moved it there, all of the convoy of Vietnam veterans against the war, the group that John Kerry was part of went to, to Miami to protest the war. Then they discovered the, uh, uh, the plan was to disable the bridges, the draw bridges that went up, I guess, to the, to the beaches out uh, out there on Miami Beach, where it would trap these protesters, and they were going to take them out there. Yeah. And they they end up having using their own demolition guys to disable those mechanisms so they couldn't get trapped. And then they became what were known as the Gainesville Eight, 
uh, at trial. But yeah. what they discovered in the Vietnam Veterans Against the War, since they had they were veterans and had experience, they discovered that all through that group, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, were riddled with informants. Yeah. Right up to the top, near the top, were informants that were not just informants, but they were agents provocateur. Yeah, they yeah. were trying to get them to do violent acts. And and when they came and testified at this trial, because they were just brought at trial for disabling the bridges mm-hmm. and it came out before the, the jury that these guys were all working for the FBI that were trying to set up these eight legitimate uh, members. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it was 10 minutes it took for them to find and favor the members to exonerate them. Um, and they ended up they warned one of these guys who was a Purple Heart recipient. They said, We'll deal with you. We'll take care of you. Mm-hmm. And about six months later, they drug him into a limo and tried to put drugs on him. And when he got out, they shot him in the back, paralyzed him. Wow. So I think, you know, now not many people know about that. That information has yeah, been buried, but this stuff happens all the time. So the scenario you paint, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you got to apply reason to it and things like who has a real motive and things, but nothing's totally out of the realm of plausibility. But yeah. I will say this. Because it was such a diverse group of people from all over America, a lot of mom and pops, including people from my own neighborhood mm-hmm. that were going <laughs> to these meetings, the FBI and others can't practically get all of them. Yeah, yeah. Now, they can get the rudder of the ship. They can get the media heads. And we already know that a lot of our top media heads were part of the mighty Wurlitzer, uh, part of the CIA's control of our media. You know, guys like Paley at CBS and others yeah, yeah. so that so they can do that. So they can g- get a hold of these groups and direct these people. But not all those people there have any kind of plausible deniability and say, oh, well, I was doing it for my country. They asked me to fulfill this role or whatever. No, hmm. they bought they bought what was there and they have no excuse, yeah. you know, for why they showed up, whether whether there were agents provocateur or not. You, you, oh. you can't now that. Now, in contrast, I wrote a lot about during the anti-Sharia era about the FBI stings Mm -hmm. where they would try to get these guys to get bombs, to bomb synagogues or things like that. And then they would come and stop it at the last minute. Most of the guys they recruited for that were people who were of low IQ that had mental disabilities or they were in extreme financial distress and poverty, mostly severe mental difficult. Yeah. Uh, and this, this would come out when they finally had trials on these guys. So, so those people, you know, you got leverage on them, but what they found out with the demographic and this, I get into this at the end of part two of the series, <laughs> the demographics of the people in that building were mom and pops in cross section of America. Yeah, yeah. These were not financially distressed people. Right. Yeah. Which for anyone who's really like a student of history and, and revolutions and regime changes around the world, um, you know, the popular conception is that, oh, well, you know, revolutions and these things happen from the starving masses who have nothing to lose, et cetera. But it's more it's more often than not more of a upper middle class and up phenomenon of people who have more to gain. Mm-hmm. Kind of like how the middle class in France used to sound cool at so. Yeah. Do the revolution, and then once they once they had the revolution, they're like, ah, bye guys, we don't need you anymore. Yeah, and they and they become the new elites. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think the thing, the point that I'm trying to make too, and I've thought about this a lot recently, is uh, like you mentioned, um, Mike, about the 
FBI kind of like entrapment cases with these Muslim yeah. youths and stuff. Um, like I remember one case in which uh, FBI agent actually drove the guy to Walmart, bought him the knife that he wanted him to try to stab somebody with, basically put the weapon in his hands and then arrested him, you know, yeah, right, right. Absolute, stuff like that. It makes me wonder what about the ones that go off the rails? What yeah. about the ones where they don't swoop in in, in time? Right. I think that's what happened in Boston. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say Boston. I think that's what happened. It's still I, I, very unclear where they learned to build those bombs. Yeah. I well, I I think that they may have been given duds, but that maybe that older brother figured it out. Yeah. That they were duds, and he switched them. And some of what we saw happen at the Capitol. I mean, these things may be more of the result of just like the incentive system and the reward system for successful operations more than they are uh, master plans by people, you know, for actual political ends. This may just be, you know, you get a bonus if you, you know, set up a sting, you know, it may just be more simple well, motivations. In some ways like it's a way for them to justify their own existence, right? If they yeah. Can, and they can say, hey, well, look how we're all heroes. We stopped this, mm-hmm. uh, stopped this terrorist attack that we planned and enabled and taught them how to do everything and encouraged them to do it for six months until they finally <laughs> tried to. And then we swooped in to the last second. My favorite was the one that the ones that uh, were going to blow up the Christmas tree in, in Portland or whatever. Yeah. And was, it makes me just question like, uh, would these events even happen in the first place without mm-hmm. them basically creating the event? Uh, it's, it's, it gets very murky and it does. You know, it, it, yeah. I don't know. It's the, it's the kind of thing that lately it's been making me really paranoid. Yeah. Well, yeah. let's talk a little bit about the internet chatter that was going on before the event. Um, everything that was happening that people were talking about, that they were going to change the election results. Uh, these interesting gathering points that, um, that were going on all across the country for these like convoys that were gathering in the days leading up to January 6th and kind of their names and what the the significance of a lot of this is. And we can see that this was obviously um, a a kind of a, was obviously a planned event. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just a spur of the moment. Let's go. Hey, every Hey guys, let's go raid the Capitol. Right. You know, the main, um, the the main places where this, there's a lot of different sources, you know, um, where this information was coming from, but there's, there was one social media site called the Donald that seemed to be a really important key one before this event. Uh, I see you waving your heads. Do you all know more about that? Or? No, I'm no, just the name just of it. I, ridiculous. Just, I just, the Donald, yeah. it was a subreddit, right? They got taken off of Reddit and then they made their own website. Right. That became a key point for a lot of the key planning. And I mentioned one of the uh, posters on there, referred to uh, Trump's attorney, Lynn Wood, who, you know, was the one that's going to release the Kraken about all of the evidence that the, the election was a fraud. And unfortunately the Kraken just hasn't appeared yet. You know, they haven't really had any of that data and, and Lynn really well, started going off. Perse- the- Perseus showed up with the Medusa's head and took care of it. Yeah, I guess so. Ray Harryhausen figures, figures. Yeah. And, and who actually said themselves in court that they were not to be taken seriously. They, they said themselves at trial that no one should ever really take anything they said seriously. But the problem is people take them as serious as a heart attack. And so uh, 
one of the posters said that they had to take these extreme measures in Washington because Lynn Wood had just told us that many of our politicians are raping and killing children. So you had that element in it as well. Baked Alaska, who's a guy you hear a lot about in the alt-right, was also part of those conversations. And sure enough, he ended up in the Senate offices. He made his way in there, but he's sort of a celebrity of this group. But Ali Alexander, who was the guy who really was the main organizer of Stop the Steel Rally, actually said before the event, and this was supposedly the the nonviolent central event that had all the major speakers there, even he said that they should immediately occupy all around the Capitol building during these electoral processes. And he says, if there's escalation, that's when we immediately escalate. So he was even promoting escalation, the guy who was the fundamental organizer himself. But the groups you mentioned, and this is what really caught my eye, was that the, the, the code names, because they wanted to be real cool, like it was a military operation. The three code names of the three groups that met nationwide, there was one group called Checkpoint called Cowboy in Louisville. There was another one called Rebel in Columbia, South Carolina, another one called Minuteman in Springfield, Massachusetts. And I think there's got to be some kind of subconscious sort of uh, um, synchro mysticism, like an id. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's well, Freudian. It's, uh, I think uh, it's mostly because a lot of these guys are, are LARPers, you know, they want to get out. It's really like what they really enjoy is getting away from their wife for the weekend, getting out their buddies <laughs> yeah. in the woods and shooting their guns and talking about how they're going to take back America and everything. Right. But Why don't they do something destructive, people, like look for Bigfoot or something? Like yeah. That. But most of these people would never do anything, right? They're all talk, no action. Yeah. Like a lot of, you know, so-called revolutionaries. Um, and then every now and then you have the occasional psycho within these groups who will do something. But for the most part, yeah. I think why you see names like that is because a lot of these guys, these are guys who yeah. drink black rifle coffee and like, you know, tr they wear like an operator beard. And they, mm -hmm. they try, even though they've never been in the military, they like to right. pretend like they are, right. you know, and, and it's. Well, it's the ir irony of this event is a lot of their women joined them. <laughs> I mean, there was a lot of women there along doing yeah, yeah. it, there was. But, but the reason why I mentioned that, I don't know why this struck me that, that these names, cowboy rebel and Minutemen, is that I think there's sort of three ideal archetype names mm -hmm. that probably best represent the age old American nativist populist culture. Mm -hmm. Because you, when you think about the unique attributes of those three in our history, you know, the first, you know, represents vigilante justice and the Anglo-Saxon conquering of indigenous people. Um, then you have in the rebel, you know, the defiant representative of those who disavow national government and authority and want to write their own ticket of individual rule, you know, and even in the Minuteman, uh, and also I would say too the subjugation of those from other shores as a servant class, that seems to be something that's inbred in us as well. And then in the latter minute, man, you know, it really reflects the armed individual outside the bounds of recognized governing authority who was just scrapping for a violent firearms fight on a moment's notice, you know, in, in resistance against law enforcement and, and law armed forces of the government in power, even though they don't have any sovereign recognized authority on their own. And I, I think that's pretty a, a pretty good encapsulation of what has made these people tick over the generations. So not to read too much psychological into this, but those three names are probably represent 
the American experience of the the nativist xenophobic side that's always been a part of America. Yeah, well, the, it I may be the, growing, but these guys who who were in these groups, though, they wouldn't be a cowboy if we were in the Wild West. They wouldn't have been the men, right? right? They probably own the ranch. Exactly. Or they would have just been, you know, just some farmer or something like a lot of these people are, are complete nobodies, but they like to give themselves these names. They like to, you know, wear their operator beards and their wraparound sunglasses and stuff mm-hmm. and make themselves feel tough because they would have been Shriners in another generation. <laughs> yeah. It's just these, these people are so alienated. A lot of these, I mean, you saw this a lot in the, the, the um, Michigan governor kidnapping thing. A lot of these guys are unemployed. Um, you know, come from or either they're impoverished or it seems to be either they're impoverished or they own a boat dealership. It's kind of like the two yeah. <laughs> classes of people that, that right. get involved in this stuff. But it, it, it says <laughs> to me that these people are, are very alienated. You know, they're completely cut off from their communities and the people around them. They don't feel like they have any control over their own life. Uh, they feel like they've been constantly screwed over by the government, either because of uh, globalization or like jobs being moved out overseas and stuff like that. And a lot of cases, I think this is the natural outcome of like economic policies. I mean, I don't want to make this too political, but um, I, well, I feel it like it's political. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like the the environment that breeds people like this and, and breeds people who right now, I think, are mostly harmless, but may not be in the future. It's the same type of environment that breeds like ISIS fighters and, and breeds right. Haram fighters. And, you know, it's when you have a bunch of young men who don't have jobs, who have no future, who don't seem feel like they have any control over their lives. This is what it leads to. Well, well Rand, I will say that throughout our history, the people you describe are the ones who are the typical people that that do this kind of thing over and over again that are on the margins. The problem is, is that the data that I show at the end of part two of the series from what they've gathered is that the ranks have now been added by small businessmen, mm-hmm. white collar workers, people in respectable jobs, yep. that somehow their mindset of the people, you know, like the, the taxi driver kind of yep. mindset, you know, like the movie that mm-hmm. now has caught fringe and it's been mainstream. Yeah, because that's the only way you can get that kind of mainstream to take over as much as 47 percent of the public yeah. is because they've taken the fringe and, and made it chic yeah. and made in mainstream to do it. So that's something that sort of keeps me up at night yeah. is to realize that it's no longer a fringe anymore. And, yeah. and as, as far as these guys, the wannabes, you know, I was thinking of, you said they weren't cowboys. They were probably the ones reading cowboy books, the, yeah, yeah. the pulp <laughs> novels, you know, yeah. and imagining. But there have been groups throughout history that have given afforded them the opportunity to dip their toe in the water. Yeah. Like, for example, the Klan. Yeah, yeah. You've got a guys, incompetent guys that never could lead a group of men for anything. But, you know, the guys in their neighborhood are part of this Klan meeting and they can talk tough and they might even go out and and terrorize some black youths, maybe even lynch some of them, do other kind of things, the, the whole night Rider kind of thing. So that's how they're sort of desensitized to this boundary that, that maybe their mama raised them in church that you don't cross the boundary of looking somebody in the eye. Yeah. 
and and hurting them or killing them. And then they get desensitized by these kind of groups. Yeah. So I think that is going on now. I mean, obviously, our 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 video game culture, first person shooter, first person shooter culture and things can also provide a similar role to that, I think psychologically acclimating us to be able to deal with that kind of thing. And social media has certainly done that too, because when you're immersed in a culture where that is just accepted to look at people as beasts to be exterminated, that can't help but rewire your brain over time. Yeah. And I think that that gets pushed by media figures like Alex Jones and others who make out all those people you hate. It's not just enough that, they don't agree with you or that they don't like you or they don't want you to come to Thanksgiving dinner is that they're also baby eating satanic pedophile cultists, right? You're, you completely Uh dehumanize the other side to the point where, well, if a couple of them get killed, maybe it's not such a big deal. Maybe they're not even human at all. Right. And that's how you desensitize the population to do, to take the next step. Right. And, Mm -hmm. and like you said, the mainstream, uh, accept it or sort of the, the addition of the mainstream and, and norm, what I would consider just like normal middle-class people to these groups has been a thing that, and I, I totally agree with you that since the Trump presidency, that seemed like that has really ramped up. Mm-hmm. And it is quite scary to me because not only does it increase, you know, their ranks, like you, like you mentioned, um, I think it's also evidence that those groups, those middle classes that, for the longest time were kept docile through relatively high wages and, you know, generally good standard quality of living. I feel like that that middle class is getting eviscerated to the point where their quality of life is not, that's where I'm looking for here. It's like, as those groups become as alienated as the lower classes, they're going to join they're going to be they're going to be subject to the same kind of drives that drive people to these extremes. Yeah. Well, their their motive in that case is desperation. Mm-hmm. But then you've also got the group that's still comfortable that's involved, but yeah. they're worried about the barbarians at the gate coming to take their stuff. Mm-hmm. And, right. and and a case in point is you remember the couple when the um, Black Lives Matter people marched through their neighborhood didn't uh, even set foot on the property and came out with automatic weapons. Yeah. The man and the woman both. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the one thing about that. This is not a man's game anymore. I yeah. mean, it's, it's really a uh, multi-sex kind of thing, you know, where they participate with heavy weaponry and arms. These people weren't even on their grounds, but yeah. it was some excuse because this is the old clan message. You know, the, yeah. they're coming to rape our white women. Yeah. And therefore, we've got to do it. But but I would look broader and I would say in my observation in history that every nation or society that sees themselves as exceptional and embraces exceptionalism eventually will adopt that viewpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think the modern state of Israel does. I think mm-hmm. England has at some point. South Africa has. Mm-hmm. And you see the same template first. You uh, find justification to see the outsiders as beasts and below human. And then you find justification to put them into some form of ghetto, mm-hmm. whether it's a um, Indian uh, reservation, you know, or uh, apartheid or, you know, uh, occupied territories or whatever. And then the third stage is, uh, you know, you uh, obliterate it's annihilation of the people. 
Mm-hmm. And that's why it really scares me about the whole exceptionalism idea and where that leads the American psyche. Yeah, yeah. And as you know, most of my criticism is for the people of faith where I come from yeah. because they have sacredized it down to the Puritans. You know, the Puritans were hardcore Calvinists that believed they were all elite and that because of that, they were the new Israel and anybody who stood in their way on the new world were by default Amalekites, mm-hmm. which were people that had to be exterminated. They, they took this name for a, for a group of vicious people in the Old Testament that were told to be eliminated, and they began to apply it to anybody who just happened to be in their way. Mm-hmm. And I think in America, they've done it ever since then, whether it was, you know, people from Mexico or whether it was the Philippines when we went over there, whoever the group was, they become the Amalekites or the beast. Palestinians, uh, Africans in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And so... That dark element, you know, in the in the faith community, sadly, at least some portion of it sacredizes it and tries to add some deeper religious meaning mm-hmm. to justify this base instinct. So, you know, right now it's become mainstream. It's not fringe anymore. And, you know, I, Minneapolis, I hope it's a little different environment where you are um, here. That is the norm. I live in- At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker. Engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. A very, very nice community, a more upscale kind of community, a fairly recent homes and nice place. And I see army fatigues, people with, you know, army painted monster trucks mm-hmm. with Trump flags and don't tread on me and crossed <laughs> gun arms mm-hmm. i know they're 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 packed with armament in their mm-hmm. homes for a fact i know that uh, a number of them knew that this was going to happen on january 6th yeah um and so it's it's got me more than a little concerned yeah it, it kind of depends on where you are i know some of your later uh one of the later uh, parts of your blog talks about the whole you know I remember when that happened, the whole Antifa super soldier, uh, they're going to come and behead all the white people um, right. thing because, you know, everybody was making fun of it on Twitter at the time, mm-hmm. you know, because it was obviously, you know, ridiculous and it wasn't going to happen and nothing happened. But you had people getting really riled up about it. Mm-hmm. And I even saw some of that happen. I remember during the riots up here um, and it's usually out in the suburbs more. Um, I live in, in kind of like in the city proper. Um but I knew I knew a couple of people who lived out in the suburbs. And this one guy I knew was just convinced uh, that he read on Facebook that that uh, Antifa or BLM protesters or something were, were riding around setting fire to houses. You know, yeah. just complete nonsense. It wasn't happening. 
Um, but him and all of his neighbors like set up these neighborhood patrols and, you know, were creating their own little, little zones and stuff. And it was, it was patently ridiculous. And it, I kept telling the guy, I was like, none of that's true. Like, and I mean, but this guy got so freaked out about it that he sold his house and moved to Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> like he got out of there and it's like, uh, I don't, it's hard for me to understand where, where these people fall for that stuff so much. I mean, you, you go into a lot of detail about the, what was it? November 4th uh, assault or whatever that, that um, right. right-wing media said was going to happen. That never happened. Right. Um, but well, yeah, the, the thing, fun. the thing about that event, why I brought that up. Well, first of all, I didn't even know about it. Mm-hmm. Didn't remember it. Shame on me, but that was such a dud. Mm-hmm. And and the same media figures that did that were the ones that were telling us now. Antifa was taken over. Yeah, yeah. And, and who's not blowing the whistle and coming up and saying, why do we believe these people a second time? This is the same thing they said before. I guess it gains no traction. Because of that same news cycle you talked about, you know, that, that enables people to lie and make up bullshit because you're not going to remember next week. Yep. Nobody's yeah. going to remember any of the... They're never going to remember the bad predictions you make, you know, so you can make a you can make a prediction for a ton of stuff that's never going to happen. And as long as you just lay low and don't ever bring attention to it, people forget about it in a while, you know? Yeah. Well, there's certain Christian ministries online that basically say about every three or four years, they have a book with a, a date in the title. <laughs> yep, yep. That that's the end. That's the Antichrist appearance then. And that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. And about two or three years later, a new one appears with a new date and nobody remembers the last one. Yeah. yeah. And, and it always amazes me. Uh, hey, Apophis is coming. Okay. Huh? Apophis is coming. You can't. Oh, well, now that one's real. Come on. <laughs> Th- that's different this time. <laughs> it's always different this time. Now, now, the fact that we've lost our ability to breed as men and women and we won't have enough generations. That's not something to be concerned about. It's that darn asteroid. You know, asteroid. I got to I got to give it to the Jehovah's Witnesses, though, because they're like they have an entire, you know, thriving religion uh, built out of, you know, a failed prophecy that they just spun into like, oh, no, it actually happened. It was just uh, it was all secret or whatever. You know, I respect that. That's a, that's a yeah. grip that uh, that I can respect. <laughs> well, that's even that's even more true of the Seventh Day Adventists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, the Adventists the, were a classic. You know, the great disappointment that, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh well, it it happened. It was just not televised. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's get into the role of the elements of the church in in the events leading up to on the sixth and uh the kind of fallout and their role in propagating like a lot of the misinfo about what happened and and who did what um you talk about how you know a lot of people you know were kind of parroting this the same line about oh it was antifa or or some of these other narratives yeah yeah, but you know, I have to confess to you, Sir Fiel, since we were focusing on parts one and two, I don't think I got into that in part three, uh, which was a long-winded uh, okay. recitation because there's so many culprits in there that did that. Were some were there some ones that stood out to you that were particularly egregious in that regard? Because no, it's, there's yeah, such a long list. Not really. I just want to point out more generally how how um, much a part of of this, the, you know, elements of organized Christianity in America were, um, 
you could talk about uh, Charlie Kirk and his connections to Liberty University. I mean, that's a big yeah. first. Well, yeah, he certainly he certainly did that. And if people are reading the parts one and two we're talking about, I get into him at this. Well, these things ha- take a life of their own when I write them. That's why they end up so long winded is I start going through some of these people and then I have to look in their background. And then one thing leads to another. And Charlie Kirk's one of those where he ended up taking half of the, the long blog post I had because I didn't realize what a central figure he was becoming. You know, you, you had a young man who uh, basically at 18 had the chutzpah to, in fact, I would say there's a lot of parallels. If the audience is familiar with, um, um, now his name just escaped me, Mr. Uh, uh, border help me here, Adam, the guy who's always worried about the border, uh, Sort of reminds me of Damien from The Omen. Um, in Shapiro? No, I mean th- this is the, the <laughs> this is the fellow who was the advisor now for uh, Donald Trump on the board. Oh, uh, Stephen uh, um, Stephen Miller. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Shapiro is more like Neo from The Matrix, right? We've since we've seen that picture that's come out. I, I mean, I just see I see Charlie Kirk and Ben Shapiro as part of the same yeah. same little. Well, they, they might be fighting over the same turf one day. Uh, Stephen Miller is the kind of guy that if people follow him for a while, you get this kind of malevolent vibe coming off of him yeah. that chills anybody to the bone that's around him. You know, there's people who may find it advantageous for a short while where they are fellow travelers and have a common goal for a while. But ultimately, he, he, he chills anybody who's been around him too long. Well, he's one of these people that we're going to see more of he's going to pop up in another administration you won't see him in a mirror though yeah right right but but just like guys like the some of the old school neocons like wolfowitz and pearl and those guys i mean they, they just show up they just keep on showing up you know like a bad penny right right like that's that's somebody like stephen miller right but but the reason why i point him to to Kirk and Stephen Miller, you know, uh, Kirk has not yet gotten as bad a reputation with a larger group of people that has yet the same kind of baggage Stephen Miller has. But what they both have in common is that they had this hyper aggressive in your face, willing to take a storyline, even though they knew for sure it was untrue themselves and they could sell it at the time they were in high school. And they started earning tons and tons of enemies. And um, the one thing for sure is a commonality is both of them became famous as teenagers for basically blowing the whistle on the liberal teaching in their high school and the liberal books that they'd been given uh, and found uh, through Steve Bannon uh, in Breitbart, a forum by which they could get in national media as, as teenagers, kids and say, oh, this is part of a master plan. And then they began to be groomed and they had enormous ambitions. And the what, what happened with this Charlie Kirk fella was that he started speaking at some different events um, that he was invited to as a young person. And Foster Fries, the billionaire investor, who was really, really big in the anti-Sharia movement, really big into all that kind of stuff, funded the uh, Frank Gaffney Center for Security Policy. He saw something in this kid that he had the ability, and again, it takes chutzpah. 
the one thing that, that will kill you if you're trying to get their stick is to have self-reflection or, you know, to analyze yourself. Like is what I'm doing? Is it really legit? Is it honest? You know, am I really doing something worthwhile for people that'll ruin it when you're trying to do this? Um, but the thing is, you got to keep a straight face. You got to say something that's totally outrageous and keep a straight face and sell it. And that's why I really recommend for the, for the listeners to watch a movie. It's actually from 1957 called a face in the crowd. Great one that has a malevolent Andy Griffith in it. Who's just totally a no count drifter and mesmerizes the nation through the new media, which by the way, Andy Griffith could play a great bad guy. Oh, incredible bad guy. And thank goodness. William Shatner, uh, pushed him off a cliff on a motorcycle (laughs) and, Pray for the Wildcats, the movie of the week. Probably the most realistic movie I've ever seen. And Robert Reed from the Brady Bunch and and Marjo Gortner as well. Um, That's a good one to watch. But anyway, um, they could see in him this potential in Charlie Kirk to to basically be a demagogue and to particularly not have any kind of uh, holding back or restriction on the outrageous claims he would make. And he got all sorts of money. So then he started building this turning point organization targeting young people, because I I think we could all agree. One of the problems with the Republican Party is that, you know, aside from homeschoolers and Liberty University and Bob Jones, they have always have a major problem getting young people to believe this very much anti poor, uh, anti human rights, you know, wealth class mindset. Because it's not natural for people to do that. They, they, they have to spend a lot of marketing money to be able to, for people to adopt a non-natural, non-ethical worldview. And so this Charlie Kirk guy had all sorts of money thrown at him and he had boundless energy and ambition. And what he was told to do was to ignore school. Don't go to college and immediately start this organization in which he starts telling people the evils of professors in college. And they have a professor watch where they would put spies in someone who espoused a liberal worldview, i.e. talking about human rights, talking about history and uh, people who'd been subjugated in various cultures and history. This, these were all dangers to them. Something that was spoken against by the corporate class, for example, would earn their, their ire. And so he built this network across campuses where we, and this tells you how sophisticated the message is. I know Adam and I have talked in the past about in the late 60s and stuff. You, you see these guys reading books by, you know, Solzhenitsyn or these great world class philosophers and figures and trying to build their own worldview. You know, these days they go on campus and, and put displays saying um, big government sucks or just government sucks. S.U.X. on campus. Uh, or, you know, Black Lives Matter sucks for, well, for a college campus crowd. One of one of Toilet Paper USA's greatest hits was when they set up um, a, a safe space. They were really, you know, they were, I guess, had problems with safe spaces or whatever. And they set up this uh, where they, they got all their volunteers to dress up like babies and yeah. crawl around inside this little space, just absolutely degrading and humiliating themselves. And that's that's. you're probably going to get into this, but that's kind of what I wonder, like how effective is this stuff? Because it all seems like 
stunts to me. And where is the money coming from? Because none of this stuff is cheap to pull off. Well, his organization, Turning Point, it was uh, was funded by, I mentioned Foster Freeze, who's this evangelical Christian businessman who provided the big bucks. Uh, there's a foundation run by Bernard Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot, that's mm-hmm. behind him. Uh, and then the in-laws of Betsy DeVos, the education secretary. Mm-hmm. His board members include Jenny Thomas, who's the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. You know, worth clarifying, too, that Betsy DeVos's brother is Eric Prince. Right, mm-hmm. right. Well, right. Blackwater. Right. Yeah, I mean, they're, it's a rogues gallery in that. Family. Man, after this, I can't shop at Home Depot or Publix. <laughs> no, sorry. They miss those sandwiches. Going to be hard up in Tennessee uh, with that. <laughs> But, but he built a network of thousands and thousands of student activists. And, and it seems like the more extreme your message, it doesn't have to have a shred of truth to it. The more extreme the way this world works these days, you can draw a major crowd. And that's what he did. Uh, and that was the sophistication of his message is what I just shared with you. So, I mean, tens of thousands of these people in in the school groups would become part of it. but how one way he got really ingratiated was that he, he met donald trump jr at one of these speaking events he even got to speak at one of the republican conventions it's just someone you know just getting ready to enter in his 20s and latched on to donald trump jr to be his bag guy to carry his bags get him his diet cokes and then try to do outreach to young people and basically kiss up to the trump family and then before long, Donald Trump starts tweeting the tweets that this youngster is writing, Charlie Kirk. Uh, in fact, Charlie Kirk is credited for inter, uh, coming up with the China virus term mm-hmm. to to somehow you know deflect criticism about things. I mean, that is the, probably the full extent of his contribution to intellectual sophistication. Yeah, there's a picture of him in the Wikipedia page with Simone Gold. Yeah, and I'd wor- I'd warn anyone to not look up a picture of this guy. You might want to punch your computer screen or throw your phone. It's because his his eyes and his mouth and his nose are all really close together, and the rest uh-huh. of his head is really big. And it's just it hypnotizes people when they watch him. Yeah, yeah, it could be sort of like how like a a train wreck <laughs> hypnotizes people, um, but. Salem Communications, which is the home of a lot of your conservative and Christian national syndicated talk shows, they saw real potential in this guy. And so they, uh, I guess this last September, hired him for for the syndicated daily drive time talk show. I think he's like 23 or something like that. Uh, So they're putting their stake on him as being the future of conservative radio, a la Rush Limbaugh. And, um, of course, not one to miss a party. Liberty University grabbed onto him and decided to make a new think tank. Although the word think is, you know, a little bit of a misnomer there, but a do something tank that was a merger of Jerry Falwell Jr. and Charlie Kirk that they called the Falkirk Center. So you can take the, the best ethics and thinking of Jerry Falwell Jr. and Charlie Kirk and merge them together in this new this new organization at Liberty University and you know funded it well to equip champions to proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ to advance his kingdom and as you get through my series the the people who have 
these religious people's mindset are anything but remotely ethical, much less Christian in the people that have their ears. But after they built this center, things started coming unglued during the, during the, uh, the years after that, because as I mentioned, Mr. Uh, Jerry pants unzipped white adultery, peeping Tom Falwell jr. Um, finally became, um, uh, what, what would you call it? Not electrified, but a third rail. And so when they got rid of him, um, eventually down went the Falkirk center. And so, but, but before long, you know, the, um, before that got to that point, um, Charlie Kirk, who had never set foot on a campus as far as in a class, had ne- never had any education beyond a high school education. He was given an honorary doctor of humanities degree from Liberty uh, uh, Online University to Charlie Kirk in recognition of his work and dedication to courageously promote American freedom and defend our common li- liberties on behalf of young students in college and high schools. So from now on, you are to refer to him as Dr. Kirk. Dr. Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. Even though he wasn't young enough to have ever earned, he, he would have barely earned an undergraduate degree at his age had he gone to school. But now he already is Dr. Kirk before that. Well, that seems to be a pattern with some of these, um, especially religious organizations to just confer doctorates on people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, you can look all the way back to the Pharisees. Pharisees did that kind of stuff to each other. They gave each other recognitions in the public on, on how wonderful they were and things like that. And uh, Jesus called them out. They said they like to be seen of men and they would congratulate each other with these special awards in public and things like that. Um, but now he was at Charlie Kirk was one of the guys speaking at what they called the wild protest. that was part of the, whole stop the steal, you know, major event that was going on. And um, his group included just, just a wonderful group of wonderful philosophical visionaries like Roger Stone, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Bobert, Dr. Simone Gold, who, by the way, you'll see in my writing, uh, found her way inside the Capitol building on the insurrection day. Did she uh, really? Oh, yeah. Yes, she she denied it profusely until finally all the pictures and you. What about the demon sperm lady? Yeah, she did she make it. I don't know about the demon sperm, but I know Simone Gold, Miss Hydroxychloroquine. She was there inside of it. Uh, Ricky Rebel uh, was there. Lucian Wintrich, who I know uh, probably Sergio, you and Ren would know that having read the other ones, who basically took over uh, uh, the Gateway Pundit. Who who is a flamboyant character to put it nicely in his own way? He's a he's a Milo kind of character. Milo, you know, lots of people are familiar with him. Maybe even Milo on steroids. Maybe. Yeah, he's, he really Lucian is Milo on steroids. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, yeah, he's a uh, you know, and it has nothing to do with his sexual proclivity or anything else like that. It it has to do with an unhinged person that is a powder keg is probably a danger to his friends as much as it is to the public at large. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had people like Sabo. I don't know who, if you know who Sabo is, but I've not been able to identify that as well as a guy that I've written about a lot in my blog, the chief prophet Lance Wallnow of the Kansas city prophets. They were all speaking on the same stage together uh, about all this. So, you know, these guys, they say they have plausible deniability. They were part of the whole crowd building yeah. all of this. Not Antifa, well-known 
uh, super right wing public figures. Yeah, and, and and Walno came out and was talking about that it was Antifa. <laughs> well, if 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 you read some of my earlier blog oh. posts where I talk about under the the lost cause, and I talk about what happened to the aftermath of this and how they were picking up the pieces, I include a lot on um, Lance Wall now, who he's the real I, I call him the centerpiece of the Kansas City Prophets or the Dominionist. Um, but his persona has always been this pie in the sky visionary, this bright future, upbeat, seeing this great vision of where things are going. And and the appearance of Trump has put a darkness over him. I mean, he's internationally influential, but now he's become very, very cynical. He's become very much opportunistic in the in an earthly sense rather than looking at this you know, heavenly agenda and goal. And if you go back and see the old blog post I wrote with him in it, I found his videos on his Facebook page when he just got back from the, the, the stop the steel rally and was there for the insurrection. And he has a totally different persona. He's sort of got a swagger. He's laying back in his chair. He's speaking very cynically, nothing like what you picture a TV preacher or a, some some prophet, you know, some inspirational guy's doing. He's just speaking very much like to his homeboys. And he's he's talking about how um oh well he said too, yeah, that was all Antifa. He saw all Antifa were the ones involved in taking this down. Now he's saying this is speaking the words of God. Okay. So that ought to tell you where to put everything else that he says. But the thing that I caught wind of is he says, Hey, I'll tell you an inside secret. Um, we're planning some big stuff later this year in 2021. Uh, I'm working with the, with the Trump, uh, family and I'm going to be touring around the Trump family. And he mentioned Mike Lindell, the, the, my pillow guy and others, and we're going to be doing the chaos tour. I remember you talking about that. Yeah. yeah and the chaos tour is coming. And so has nothing to do with saving souls or making it to the kingdom of heaven or even healing. It was all about we're going to be able to grab power. We haven't given up on that. This was just round one, and we've got more in store. So, I, you know, back to, to Ren's uh, provocative uh, assessment that there may have been an insider planning on this, which certainly could be possible. The problem is they may have been an instigator, but there's too many other people here that have their own agendas. <laughs> and I see a powder keg and and a perfect storm that's coming of a lot of people that have their own agendas and i don't see things ending well and and even the events of today where we have all this denial where we had um like i mentioned the four g's you got gomert uh gosar matt gates and marjorie taylor green came up today and said that the insurrectionists they came in and pummeled the police people were actually um, patriots and heroes Mm. and that they were political prisoners for being put in prison for beating up our police and vandalizing, you know, Capitol and trying to hang our congressmen. Not only is that going this counter narrative, but we have a day today where the CDC has now said their new data confirms that people who've been vaccinated can be carriers of the virus and because of that, they're recommended any interior meeting of people needs to be masked. 
And they're also now saying as of today that any school meet, meeting in any school, all the children need to be masked, all the administrators, the teachers need to be masked. And furthermore, there was just an announcement about federal government tonight that all federal employees have to wear masks. So now can you imagine after all of the fighting that went over about wearing masks last time, which was partly why people got all hot and bothered at leaving to the insurrection. Yeah. I mean, that was an element of this is the pushback on the COVID restrictions. Yeah. Their response was never again, never again. Are we going to endure any of this? And now it's going to come back as bad or worse. You know, I, w- I was talking to my partner about this earlier um, because, you know, personally, I don't like wearing a mask. Yeah. You know, but you know, I'll do it if I have to, but I don't like it. And I understand where some people are coming from if because they lifted the mask restrictions, which I thought was a mistake when it happened. I was like, they're, the masks are going to be back. Just give it a couple months. And sure enough, yeah. I was right. Um, but that anytime something like that happens, it erodes. It's just like at the beginning of the pandemic when they were like, oh, no, you don't need to wear a mask. And then all of a sudden you need to wear a mask. And right before they lifted the mask mandates earlier, you know, they were recommending people wear three masks. First, it was two masks and then it was three masks. And it was just it seemed to be getting more and more ridiculous. And now that they're flip flopping on the masks. I can understand how some people are looking at this and saying, man, the people in power have no idea what's going on. Mm. They are flip flopping all over the place and I don't trust it at all. And it's, it's a problem that, that our government is creating, you know, by, by not having uh, a stronger mandate or or political will to do what needs to be done. Well, I will, I will will say as a scientist, myself of background. Okay. And, and sort of having been there a little bit, I'm not going to be an apologist for everything they've done, including the missteps. But I will say this. They're human beings. Mm-hmm. This is something that appears to be somewhat unprecedented mm-hmm. in, in the scale and scope and the issues and also in the resistance from the public. This this is unprecedented. I can tell you, if we had the same 50 percent of the public that you know, a generation ago or a few generations ago that we had now, we'd all be in iron lungs with polio right now and probably with smallpox lesions mm-hmm. because I can't imagine how they sell sold universal vaccines to children and adults back then with, with the population that we have now, we would be in complete jeopardy at the same time with that too. But the, each of those issues that you mentioned, at face value, if that's all you, you look at, you would say, well, that's crazy. Why, why did they not think that you had to wear a mask? Well, at the time when the scientists were meeting, it was not thought that um, those particulates, airborne particulates, were the main transmission means. Yeah. The additional problem was there were no masks. Yeah. They were I having felt, to, I always felt like that was the main thing. They were trying well, to remember in 95 masks for medical professionals. They had to quarantine. Yeah, right. They had a triage mask. And so the first priority were medical workers. Mm-hmm. Makes good sense for me to do that. So then they also found out that there was, there, as opposed to a surface transmission, because they, they have to go based on corollaries of prior similar diseases that they've had in the past mm-hmm. to project for preparation. 
So as they gathered more data, they found surface transmission was not as big an issue. You remember how we used to have to wipe everything down and your mail and everything? Well, I mean, it's not that it can't happen. It can still happen. It's but the airborne, the huh? It's just not the main vector. No, it's certainly not. The yeah. main was the was the airborne transmission, and they found out that it could stay in the air for a very long period of time. So when you go down the aisle at the supermarket, someone who's even out of sight from you could left, leave behind yeah. this aerosol that you would ingest. So then they have to adjust for it. But, you know, when they took the mask mandates off, it, it's almost like they're a child photographer. They have to deal with the subject they're dealing with as well as the job they have to do. And getting people to wear a mask as long as they did was a miracle. Mm-hmm. Given the crowd we have, it was a miracle. They had mask wearers as long without more riots. And we, we know in various cases, there were armed rebellions at the state capitals in several places for wearing a piece of paper on your face. Yeah. So, you know, you, you have to think about what they're trying to sell to sort of a juvenile public at some point. And so, well, don't you, you know, think the lifting the mask mandates has more to do with just uh, trying to get the economy going again than any, because that's what it's, it's stung of to me. I mean, I felt like yeah. it was, not because they, they thought it should lift it just because they wanted to get the money flowing again. Well, would, yeah. Would January 6th have happened without everything that happened? Because I mean, we're talking about these middle-class people and business owners uh, you know, becoming a part of this rebellion, most of that probably was because their businesses suffered greatly and they didn't feel like they had as much to lose as usual. And in fact, they feel like they lost, uh, were losing because of uh, the the quarantine and mask mandates. Yeah. And you can look at the, you can look at the, the protests at the state houses, especially in Michigan as precursors to what happened on January 6th. Yeah, yeah. Now, it was a contributor. But when you hear them write about the main causes, that was not the first cause that came up. Yeah. They were afraid about Now, I'm, I'm not saying it's not a contributor because it sort of added to their whole alienation of I feel helpless. These people are deciding stuff to affect my day to day life and I'm helpless. The problem is they really couldn't they really couldn't blame their national leaders for that because it was going on around the globe. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, you couldn't blame the Democrats for what was happening in India or these other nations or things like this. Mm-hmm. So, um, but they don't have the foresight to think that through. Yeah. You are talking about Americans here, though. They've been that's right. They've been given somebody to blame, and that that makes them happy. They're content with that. So, I, I the reason I bring this up is that, um, yeah, yes, the economic issue was there. I mean, masks shouldn't have totally made the difference. I mean, there's very few cases that you couldn't still run a business and wear a mask to. Uh, they found ways to run their business. This but people just didn't want to fool with them and they didn't want to be told what to do because yeah. that's the way Americans are. But, but for me, what I've observed by the response of at least half of the public to this whole operation is to find they really don't give a flip about their neighbor or what they do that affects the well-being of their neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. And that's this is a crowd who says they believe the one who came up with the golden rule and turn the other cheek. But, well, I don't care if it's a piece of paper or a sticker on the end of their nose. They don't want to do it, even if it killed their neighbor to, you know, to do it, that they're incensed that they would be asked to do it. to be. And, And how much of that is this focus on individuality and that 
you know, the, the extolling the virtues of the individual over the community for the last 40 years. I mean, how much of that has just become ingrained at this point? Right. And that that is what... I mean, that's essentially all my generation has ever known. Right. Right. Well, they, they weren't really raised on communal pride in terms of earlier generations did a lot of community service things like through the Eagles Lodge or Fraternal Order of whoever. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a big part of the lifestyle. And now everybody sort of lives on their own, on their couch and their nesting and, and things like alone. that. Going yeah. back to what I was talking about before, the alienation, right? Right. Completely destroy people's communities and, and get rid of any kind of communal effort. And this kind of individuality right. and exceptionalism is what you get as a consequence of it. Right. I mean, and and no, no concern for your neighbor. Yeah. No concern it, about here. And, and that's it, what was a dark part about libertarianism as much as I found that I liked in it. You know, the right of free association and self-determination and and, you know, all these other kind of things are good stuff. Well, I started finding is this whole card hold dystopian Darwinism and they always underestimate these people think they're an island. You know, you read Ayn Rand and in her books and things. And these people are these noble people who keep themselves afloat on their own. But they always underestimate two things, how much they have depended on other people to get to where they are. Yeah. People that have pub- that educated them in schools or provided other services to help them. And they always underestimate how much their actions impact other people. Yeah. The water they, they pollute, the air they pollute. I'm sorry, Ren. I said they also underestimate their own capabilities as well. I think the oh, yeah. effect is extremely strong in those communities. And right. these are some of the people like, like the cowboy thing we talked about before. Right. These are, this is ideology that attracts people who. Uh, are probably the softest, most pampered generation of humans who've ever lived on this earth. Like we have a better standard of living than probably the majority of human history. Um, and yet they think that they're somehow rugged individualists who could, you right. know, right. forge their own path and all that kind of stuff. You know, That's the mythology. Yeah. 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 You know, I was, I was trying to think of the name of the, uh, uh, the rancher, who had a standoff with the government. I'm trying to the remember the Bundy Clive and Bundy. Yeah. yeah Clive and Bundy. You know, he's a case in point. He, he was a card carrying member of that independent free spirit. Don't tread on me. I can take care of it. You know, he had the standoff with the government. Cause their whole thing is based on using federal land. As I understand it, you know, to, uh, that's where I was going. Sergio. as I understand it, he he would pay a fee to use that land. And I think it was a pretty modest fee mm-hmm. to, to use federal land to graze because he was making money off it. This is a profit thing and nothing wrong with that. But he would pay his fee to do it. He just decided he wouldn't go pay it. Right. And so he, he didn't want to pay it for a while, but he was still using the federal land, which is all of our land. And, and it was so convenient that he decided to espouse a political view mm-hmm. that said, well, the federal government can't own any land. So he said it would have to be state land. Well, he wasn't paying the state the money. It was just an excuse for him to be greedy. Now, to add insult to injury, one of the things that lost a lot of his support amongst celebrities was that he came out and was talking about the black community in Las Vegas and saying, oh, they're just welfare cheats and they're just lazy bums and sit on their porch. And there's just nothing worthwhile that they do because they're lazy welfare exploiters. And this is coming from the mouth of a guy who's an ultimate 
exploiter of, of state resources himself. Right. I mean, what a deadbeat he was himself. And so that's why I find common about these people is this cognitive dissonance and hypocrisy of, you know, they really want to espouse, like you say, this individual freedom. But when you peel the onion back, you find they're on the dole one way or the other. And the same thing with with the whole corporate world, because the corporate welfare that they get through their other kickbacks, their uh, credits and other things they get often dwarfs other entitlements. But they don't want to keep that on the on the books. That's all off the books of what they consider. So, yeah. um, but this this has basically become part of the whole culture. And you know, a lot of the people that I know that I was raised with, and family, and and other friends, are are obsessed with what they've been told about socialism as the ultimate threat, and everybody wants a free ride. Um, I was raised that anybody that got food stamps, which was about everybody but us. All drove Cadillacs and bought T-bone steaks with their the welfare queen. Right, that was what I was told. Everybody was, and you know those same people who still say that were more than happy to cash their socialism welfare checks when they came in their mailbox this last year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. didn't feel the least bit, and they didn't earn it at all. They didn't do anything to work for it. Most of them didn't even have financial distress, but they didn't feel the least compunction about taking that money. Hey, they, they didn't even have to go to the mailbox. It just pops it right into their bank account. <laughs> That's right. In fact, I have a friend whose uh, older sister got hers like first, and she had been dead for three or four years, and, <laughs> and she got her checks. Um, so, you know, the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first, so maybe they get their checks first, too. I don't know. <laughs> but... But, but, you know, to sort of circle this around to where we are today, we do have a culture of entitlement. And the entitlement is not what we call the welfare recipients. We have a nation, even psychologically, of welfare recipients. And they feel like they're being cheated out of something. Hmm. There's nobody out. Well, there's very few out there that feel content with yeah. where they are in life. And are just focusing on their life. They they feel some aggrieved sense that they have been denied something. Well, I would I would argue they have. I mean, I would argue that 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 maybe they don't understand their own their own sense of entitlement. They don't understand what they're being yeah. denied. Right? They come up with their own excuses for their own their own right. beliefs about it. Um, but I, I do think that you see. I mean, look at uh, wage growth versus productivity. Yeah. over the last 30, 40 years, right? Like Americans, the quality of life as an American is like falling, right? The, the yeah. ability of people my age, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. Um, I'll probably be the last generation of people who can never afford to buy a house. Yeah. You know, like um, real estate home ownership is completely out of reach for more, most of the people in the generation under me. And, um, I think for a long time, for for a long time, the middle class and upper middle class were were insulated from this like yeah. uh, wage stagnation and and basically this this slow boiling of their of their ability to live, and I think it's catching up, right? Mm-hmm. I think a lot of these people do realize, at least on some instinctual level, that things aren't as good as they were. 20, 30 years ago, the the same opportunities that their parents had aren't available to them. And that's what worries me is that, that I don't think things are getting any better, at least not in the short term. And with the mask mandates coming back, 
possibly the lockdown. I'm, I'm fully expecting the lockdowns to start up again. Yeah. Um, I'm scared that, you know, things are going to get a lot crazier than they were last year. And in January, yeah. you know, I'm expecting a lot more civil unrest around the country and I'm not, looking- I don't know if the lockdown is going to happen. I, I don't know. I, I, We'll see. I mean, yeah. I, when, when they first lifted the mask mandates and, you know, me and my partner got vaccinated, we were like, I was like, look, we got to go out and go to restaurants and enjoy this while it lasts. Cause I promise you it's not yeah. going to last very long. Yeah. Yeah. It might happen in Minnesota, but I don't know if it's going to happen down here. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. They I mean, said, they said basically never again down here yeah. in a lot of, a lot of red States. They, they, they're, they're, you know, sort of sounds like the Holocaust survivor. Well, I mean, there really was no, there was no state mass mandate in Tennessee. It was just up to the mayors of the four cities yeah. and they had to do it. Yeah. If you went outside of Davidson County or even on the fringes of Davidson County, uh, it was yeah. not being observed. Right. Yeah. Well, Rand, in response to what you were saying, and I don't dispute anything of what you just said, because in my book, I talk about the the transfer of wealth to the upper 0.1 percent which mm-hmm. is the elephant in the room we can't get a, get around yeah but but what i find is is that these forces that i document in my book and elsewhere in the media will target them toward the wrong culprit oh yeah there mm-hmm. are people who are profiteering from that what you're saying and that control the marketplace that control labor and rates and the whole balance of power there or imbalance but what there's the told is is that the ins- the institution that's supposed to be the regulator of that and supposed to be the referee yeah. they're made them out to be the enemy yeah yeah rather than the one that's shaking them down and so government in by its very nature an institution is made to be evil and in in christian media as i've documented that goes back at least to the 40s mm-hmm. when they began doing that to stop the new deal yep and so rather than trying to find them as a potential referee to help look out for their interest against the power of the marketplace mm-hmm. they have been turned against them uh, yeah. you know against their own enemy which which is sort of like what we have today with the the things they've made vaccines the enemy and masks the enemy which could be a means for their own safety and deliverance well, and that's a, why that's such a tragedy and that that one percent i mean it's it's survival right they know what they're doing yeah they know that they want to keep their heads on their shoulders so they have to spend a whole lot of money, build these think takes like the Cato Institute and all these other places to put out these narratives and draw, try to try to blame it on anyone. But then they know it's that they're the problem, right? They're just hoping that they can, you know, uh, redirect everyone's ire and keep themselves safe. Um, And it's, it's sad because I know we've talked about this before. All these people are barking up the wrong tree when it comes to who's really, taking things away from them right you know, who's really making their life worse every year right because it's it's not immigrants and it's not the regulatory agencies or whatever the people are sold this myth that um oh well we don't need regulation because it, it creates more jobs or creates opportunities or whatever when in reality it just increases the one percent's bottom line and increases their wealth right mm-hmm. but people always have that illusion of the american dream that oh well if if only i work hard enough or i'm smart enough or whatever then maybe i'll be a billionaire one day like jeff bezos yeah when in reality they're never going to be a billionaire you know they're yeah 
The propaganda is real. Let's let's swing back a little bit to the uh, the time we got left to the to the January sixth because I got a couple of uh, points I want to hit, and we probably only cracked like two pages of Doctor Features. 17 page notes but yep. uh, the uh the the oath keepers their role and also this role of and we hit on this a little bit but uh this seems to be a group where the head of it seems to like to have like a plausible deniability that uh that they had any instigation in it um you talked about in the blog post about ferguson and how they were involved there but there seems to be an, an involvement with them as well with uh, January 6th. Right. Yeah, it just so happens that it didn't work out to where the Oath Keepers got to make it in because they were providing security for all of the right-wing speakers that were there, and particularly Alex Jones. And so, uh, according to the... Was it Stuart Rhodes, I believe is his name? Uh, well, Stuart Rhodes said that basically... Uh, after he took them back to the hotel, that's when he suddenly got word that somebody was was in the uh, Capitol building and he was standing outside there at the time when he heard about all this going on. But there were other Oath Keepers that were in there and they took the fall. Now, one of them, supposedly one of the leaders is was starting to squeal. But that's back in, I believe, April when they finally got him to turn. And the wheels of justice move slowly. So I don't know if they're going to be able to somehow implicate some of these other people as they start vetting that information or if in fact it will just wither on the vine. So, you know, I, I don't know whether that will, will work out or not. Um, but uh, um, let me see if I have some other information I can uh, share with you about it. Um, he said, uh, what, what I wrote was that Rhodes disavowed any meaningful connection to Caldwell or Crowell, which was two of the main people. If you remember, she was the one that had all the military gear and was leading about 30 or 40 people on a military operation she trained in Ohio. Uh, and these, these were these units that sort of worked under the Oath Keepers that they, they had hands off from them. Um, Rhodes did say that Watkins played an important part in the group's mobilization and opposition to demonstrations around police abuse in Louisville last year. So my old hometown, when they had the, uh, the killing of the, the young lady, you know, when the police broke into the wrong place and Brianna then, Taylor, yeah. yeah, Brianna Taylor, um, that, um, they were involved even in that and trying to resist the protesters there. So you really can't say they're, they're a group of the people because the people are, are usually who they're setting themselves up against. Um, but uh, I, I wrote here that it says uh, from from the reports I had that right wing militia movement leaders like Rhodes, who is a Yale Law School graduate, a former Army paratrooper and former staffer for Re Republican Congressman Ron Paul, was disbarred in 2015 to the Montana Supreme Court for conduct violating the Montana rules of professional conduct. But that now he leads a militia group of what they claim to be 30,000 ex or current military and police officers uh, who learned well from their experience in senior military, political and government positions. Um, and particularly in the area for the top guys, as far as his plausible deniability, where they have their their lower guys sort of take the fall from when they do these kind of things. Um, the. Um, 
I've lost my spot here, or I would share with you a little bit more about him. Uh, were there some things that caught your eye about that, about the Oath Keepers, uh, Adam? Well, just that, you know, Stuart Rhodes basically said that there was just the way that it's structured, I guess, is that the top does not have to basically doesn't take any responsibility for anything that the others do. And in fact, there was one of the groups that, uh, that, that decided that they were not going to participate. So it's like a microcosm of what's going on in the larger world. And, And I think that's sort of like the wave of the future. Mm-hmm. is that there'll be instigators of these things, but the, the paper trail, they will be completely limited and who they can do that. But, but in the, in the data that I had written about this, I showed that um, the overwhelming members in these oath keepers were people who the public has already paid enormous amounts of money to train in high level paramilitary capabilities. And in fact, there's even some military and law enforcement people high up that are still training oath keepers as oath keepers. So they're being brought in. You know, we, we talked about the Washington police and their sympathizers in board. Well, there's sympathizers across the country who are helping them in what they're doing. And um, uh, the um, as I just mentioned, that that woman that was her name, Jessica, I believe, um, uh and uh, Thomas Caldwell, who was helping her, they were the ones that were, they got the message, the Facebook messages right before this, where they were saying all the members talking about the uh, um, congressional members are in the tunnels under the Capitol, seal them in, turn on the gas. And they, as far as I know to this day, they still don't understand about what were they talking about, about the capabilities or did they have capabilities to do anything with them with right. those people trapped down there? Right. Um, but they were passing. They had already had the layout of the building itself. Um, they said, go through the back chamber doors facing north down the hallway steps. Um, and they were uh, the three were part of a group of eight to 10 people, all wearing paramilitary gear and oath keeper paraphernalia. Um, Caldwell was still an active or a retired Navy captain, but he was still getting his retirement pay from the Navy. And at Watkins, that was Jessica Watkins. She was uh, part of a trained group of 30 or to 40 people. And I think, as you mentioned before, uh, there was another fellow who was a lead uh, guitarist and lead songwriter for a heavy metal band, Iced Earth, that was part of those groups, too. So it's a very, very diverse group of people. You've got um, local um, elected officials. You've got sheriffs and other people like this, and you've got this melting pot of people who are all participating in this. So um, the common demographic we have of the people unemployed and, you know, or the taxi drivers on the edge of society, it's, it's, it's bigger than that now, yeah. uh, where these people come from. Well, I, I think it's important for everybody to kind of understand the history and the fascist movements in the last century of um, these kind of irregular armies, people who are self-deputized and their relationships, you know, to these other layers of actual authorities of actual police, that there's this weird, there's this weird murky in between that the, the real escalation and uh, an action happens. Right. 
Yeah. You know, Stuart Rhodes was on InfoWars before this all went down with Alex Jones. And what he told them, he says, we have men already stationed outside D.C. as a nuclear option in case they attempt to remove the president illegally. We will step in and stop it. It's either President Trump is encouraged and bolstered and strengthened to do what he must do, or we wind up in a bloody fight. We all know that the fight's coming. You mentioned a lot of these guys are are ex-military. And I'm just curious, is there any information on what they do for a living? Like are, because, you know, popular profession for ex-military, especially in this country is, private military contractor, AKA mercenaries. Right. And it makes me think about that recent ridiculous coup attempt in Venezuela with those American mercenaries. And uh, apparently recently that the thing in Haiti too was also exactly mercenaries. Right. And what kind of connections they have. I mean, with you mentioned Betsy DeVos before having connections to these, to these groups and we all know who her brother is and what he leads. So um, does that, does that worry you that, there's basically a mercenary army <laughs> within our own borders. Oh, I, I, I mean, it's, it's a loose ad hoc network. But what I found furthermore in my research on those two incidents you just brought up, which really raised my flags, too, is that I learned that there is a place in America that is the clearinghouse, sort of like post-war Berlin or mm-hmm. Vienna for intrigue. And that is the Doral in Florida. Evidently, all of these uh, soldiers of fortune all hang out around that town in Florida, and that's where they get picked up and hired. Hmm. And, you know, you know, the ones for Haiti were getting hired by a guy who was uh, a doctor hmm. in Florida who basically wanted to take over the country. If you remember that, oh, he didn't tell them that at first. He told yeah. them they just wanted security. So yeah. then they went to Haiti and then he says, well, really, what I want to do is overthrow this guy and and. You know, they went through with it, although some of them said, well, they didn't tell us to kill the president. They did eventually, but they had Colombian guys fighting as well as some of the guys here. So these guys get together and they don't even know each other. They Mm -hmm. just find they're part of a ragtag group of ad hoc. So what all that takes away is any sense of order. Yeah. And you might hold intelligence playbook, right, where you have handlers and people higher up that kind of have a plan or know what they're trying to do. Right. Right. They relay all these orders through trigger men down below. So that that creates that plausible deniability. I mean, that's what it reminds me of all these like media figures and stuff being like, well, I didn't have anything to do with this. Right. You know, like, well, yeah, no, you didn't. But all those people that you told to pull the trigger did. Right. Well, you know, I mean, that's, that's why people are just shocked. Well, you, you you said Russia was involved in doing X, Y, Z. There's mm-hmm. no document that says I'm Vladimir Putin and here's some money for you to do my bidding. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they're shocked. Well, that it can't be true because there's no document like that. Yeah. Obviously, they use cutouts mm-hmm. for this. They're not fools. Mm-hmm. What what really scares me is when I. I look at my cultural background, you know, in, in evangelical culture mm-hmm. and how their message has been a centerpiece of a lot of this destabilization, hard right, uh, hawkish information. Mm-hmm. And, and I've gotten a hold of their tax records and I've seen the huge sums of money that come in out of nowhere. Yeah. It just makes me wonder how convenient these organizations, because they're so effective in moving a large bulk of the public how much they have been uh, 
privy to these cutouts that are sending money to the religious component. Mm-hmm. When I was writing the Holy War Chronicles, I went outside and had an event. It, I called it a prayer event, but I guess it probably looked like a protest event outside the National Religious Broadcasters Convention with a handful of people. Simultaneous as I was doing that, they had the ex-CIA head, um, Woolsey, James Woolsey, and other CIA people instructing the top religious leaders in a formally called event at the National Religious Broadcasters to tell them what they need to tell their parishioners on air uh, to fight the anti-Sharia war. Wow. They were saying, this is the government, this is your intelligence community position on what part role you need to te- pay and how we're going to fight anti-Sharia and anti-Muslim. And of course, they were all flattered. These people were flattered, just like how they're flattered if an Israeli commando officer shows up at their church to speak. They feel like there's somebody if these guys give them attention. So when Sasha Baron Cohen did that, right? they were all like, you know, kissing his ass. And- he gets it. You know, he gets it. And so when they bring these people in and they take this on, um, you know, in my next volume of my book, I start showing through the tax records on how the Koch brothers started buying out some Christian ministries and how they immediately changed their charter information about what they were concerned with when that money arrived. And the other group was the unification church who took over a whole lot of these organizations. And suddenly they came to the defense of, of Reverend moon when he was going, you know, being run up the Creek for tax evasion and things like this. So, um, that's the darkness that I really see is these cutouts and the money. And, you know, I mentioned here about this stop the steal thing. I mean, you, you've got this cross section of people like an heiress from uh, Publix, you know, or Home Depot or places. It's like, well, what's really going on in the heads of these people that we've been living around? It, you wouldn't be surprised if it was big oil, for example. But now we can't just finger big oil is the main culprit that we've got to be worried about. Now, now the money's coming for now, now we have a guy who makes pillows on his own is about as powerful as anybody else in the country. Yeah. I mean, Hobby Lobby recently, or yeah, they yeah. were like uh, getting, buying up all kinds of ancient artifacts from Iraq. Like when, when ISIS were, were like uh, raiding the museums and stuff. So a lot of stuff got stolen. And I think uh, I just saw in the news today that the government, uh, sees the epic of Gilgamesh from the owner of Hobby Lobby. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, they got it back. So, I mean, so, yeah, it, it's really strange to see. I don't know. It's like these mid-tier corporations getting in on this stuff. Yeah. Let well, in you- in volume three of my book, I will get into how um, the head of one of our major fast food chains we can thank for remote viewing. Wow. So, so you know. <laughs> We don't know that we don't know the tip of the iceberg, to be really honest with you. Um, one of the other heiresses, I forget of what other some humdrum company was the main one that was maybe it was Kraft, maybe that was actually bankrolling the um, Venezuelan botched overthrow attempt. Wow. Yeah, there were there were I mean, and there were heiresses to I, I think the Folgers or, or something. That we're bankrolling Nexium, you know, like, I mean, this is just, it's rich people just being bored. Let me ask you, um, both of you guys, and get your thoughts on this. So, my curiosity is, January 6th, whether you can compare it to something like the Beer Hall Pooch, right? So, the Beer Hall Pooch failed, 
and the Nazis did not take over Germany in 1923 through a coup. Is this something similar to where in a few years we may see a real right-wing takeover of this country because this time they'll be smarter and figure it out? Well, I don't know, man. Just uh, wait until President Tom Cotton and then you'll you'll figure it out. I mean, I, I I don't see this country, and maybe this is pessimistic of me. Maybe this is nihilistic. I don't want to bum out all the conspiracy normal listeners, but I don't see this. I don't see the state of the world getting better right now, and that you know, increasing alienation, uh, rising inflation, food prices going through the roof, all this other stuff. I, I don't see it going anywhere but fascism. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, either that or some, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't think the revolution's coming. Maybe that's just me, but um, I, I think that we're going to see in, in, it, like an increase in that sort of um, isolationist rhetoric, like fascist rhetoric, uh, as things kind of slide even further mm-hmm. as the years go on. Climate change gets worse. And, right. I mean, we're already seeing the, sort of the effects of it this year, like with the Midwest, um, just lock. I mean, a lot of the country's on fire and then huge portions of the the Midwest have been in a drought all summer. So like there's things, there's like 15 million tons of crops. It was hazy here last week because of the wildfires in the West. Yeah. 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 Nashville. British Columbia hit 121 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. A few weeks ago. I mean, British Columbia and you know, the, uh, that Surfside building that fell, I wonder what's going to, you know, as far as like how its foundation was undermined and there was a bunch of neglect and things, but as the seawater rises, it's not only going to just be the fact that buildings are submerged underwater, what starts happening to all of those condos on the coast when the water table rises and starts impeding on foundations and things like that. I mean, there's really no way to predict but um, I think the beer hall push is um, about as apt a corollary as you're going to find. But it does beg the question of what do you define as failure? You know, Adam, I know, I know when you said failure, you meant like the immediate near-term failure. But obviously, it was critical for the success of the Nazi party to have that because right. they needed that lost cause as part of their, their mythology. Well, also, you know, they put him on trial. Right. He was put on trial and he got his he got his soapbox. And also when he went to prison, that's where he wrote Mein Kampf. And he got relatively a slap on the wrist for for threatening to overthrow a cop. You know, and that's what these guys are getting uh, right now. They're getting slaps on the wrist. Most of them are not getting jail time or they're getting a small amount of jail time. Because their lawyers get them all cleaned up and they look at like Mon Paul Kettle when they come to court, you know, or, or American Gothic or something. When they're there, they don't look like some raving lunatic when they get all scrubbed and suit and tie in front of the, the, the judge. And so these people are getting a slap on the wrist. And so I think we're in a lull before the storm. Um, you know, I read some of my references I quote in my, my writing that they considered it a victory because anytime you do this and you sort of get away with it, even though I mean, they didn't even have an agenda exactly. 
I mean, who was who was the person who had it all figured out what to do once they killed everybody? You know, who thought long enough? But what happens is there'll be somebody who comes along that does think it through. There'll be somebody who corrals all of this insanity and chaos and will know how to groom it and tailor it for for step two. Right. These guys couldn't get by step one. Someone that is much more well-spoken. And well, and, right. and seems well-meaning than Trump, but and can organize better. You know, I mean, like I said, these guys once they did all this stuff, let's say they'd gotten the congressman and killed them, they had no idea what to do after that. There, yeah. there was no second plan or whatever. But, but I would say we're in probably a two-year lull until the Republican primary debates start. Oh, the midterms are next year. I don't, I mean, well, the midterms may be part, I mean, they may be part of it. I, I picture there'll be a little tipping from one side to the next, maybe a little bit. If the Republicans win the congressional stuff, then that'll just paralyze the government. Yeah. You know, I for think a couple gonna, of years, I think the Democrats are going to get blown out. That's just yeah. my personal theory. They, they, whoever shows up, but, but I think the big hit that the, they're mesmerized by, the presidential leaders, they don't get as excited by congressional folk. Mm-hmm. So the president thing is what captures their imagination. And so I think in two years when they start that, there's there's going to be more money put in to reselling Donald Trump. And then there's going to be more advertising on TV. There's going to be more rallies. And, uh, you know, either he runs or somebody he appoints. And we don't know if Rick Sant- or if uh, DeSantis is going to be an heir impaired for him or a rival. That you know, there, there's already friction between him where he's parted from Trump a little bit, as close as he's been to him. But I think in two years is when things get worse. And I'm afraid that if it's going to be as bad the end of this year with COVID and Delta as I anticipate, and as the data seems to suggest, they're going to be extreme draconian measures that are people. Are going to really think there's going to be more people that be willing to travel to Washington. Yeah, maybe not present company here, but there'll be more people who were sympathetic to the folks on TV, and they'll have more gumption to actually get in their car and load in their weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, because round two, particularly if it's worse, you know, this whole thing about declaring all federal employees have to be vaccinated. There's a large part of federal employees that I bet you will see on TV that will refuse and do protests and will probably be forced to be, you know, arrested or, or whatever they do um, against this to protest against it. Yeah. I mean, like, that's, uh, a, that's uh, an extreme uh, measure. Yeah. Think about all the people who work at the, uh, the army depot that I grew right. up, in, you know, guys in Alabama, I bet a lot of those people who work at the army depot, there aren't vaccinated up to now. The military would not even mandate it. And that's what blew my mind. I mean, I know people in the Marines and then the, because there were so many Marines that wouldn't take it. I mean, the military, you always have to take strange vaccinations. Yes. You don't have any say against it. You just <laughs> you're forced to take it and you and, it, and you might have negative reactions, but but they own you yeah. and you just do it. And there's no questions asked. This time was different. And, you know, and I know somebody involved in those circles and they said, no, they're not mandating it because, uh, these people are against it. And I said, you know, I don't think it's just the people at the bottom rungs that are against it. I think that there's some well-placed people in senior military management that are running cover for them. 
to mm-hmm. keep it from being mandated. And that gets back into your beginning assertions about what happened with the Washington police and mm-hmm. their sympathies. Is it all it takes is key people that are sympathizers higher up mm-hmm. that can gum the works. And I think that's what kept the military from getting automatically vaccinated now. So yeah. like you said, well, you know, they're going to have a harder time if they're active duty, mm-hmm. putting up much of a fight, if it is mandated, yeah, yeah. but you got guard people, you know, guard members, and you've got ex-military, other people who may see that somebody's, t- you know, that somebody's affecting their sacred military by doing it again. They never had any problem with any other vaccines, yeah. but this has become to symbolize something else to them. It's become like a culture war thing for them. Right. Well, I want to thank you guys for really cheering me up tonight. Um, Good. Uh, I feel yeah, much better. Sorry. I feel much better about the state of the world and where we're going. And, Always uh, look on the bright you know, side uh, of life. Despite that the world is slowly heading towards an abyss, uh, we'd like you to join these two, us and these two gentlemen at the Strange Realities Conference in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> Now, we have been exploited. Ren and I have been exploited for your material windfall purposes. I didn't know this was a setup. <laughs> Ren, do you feel as dirty as I do? No, I'm, I'm excited about it. You know, everyone come party with us at the end of the world. It'll be right. the last great party. That's a good way to think about it. That is a good way to think about it. Um, yeah. So you guys are going to be at uh, the Strange Realities Conference coming up here. In Nashville, Tennessee, October 15th through the 17th. And uh, do you guys have any idea what you guys are going to talk about? Um, I think I'm going to be presenting on uh, Lovecraft and uh, Lovecraftian magic and the works of Kenneth Grant. uh, Going into sort of uh, some of the stuff Peter Levin talks about in The Dark Lord. Um, It's just something I've been into recently, and I think I can make a cool presentation about it. Juicy, Doctor Future. Yeah, I, 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 I'm disappointed in Ren. I thought there'd be something a little bit more edgy than that. You know, (laughs) that old has been Lovecraft. You know, been there, done that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Actually, I'm going to try to have a little bit more weirdness than tonight. In, um, I want to revisit more what I talked a little bit on one of your little exclusive shows about the Monroe Institute and about the different techniques and how the military is really into these techniques of basically putting the left brain to sleep. And they're making incredible claims about going back and forward in time and fighting entities that they casually mention. And um, evidently lots of officers are flocking to get this training. And there's a lot, I don't know, but I'm going to throw some stuff up there and just ponder the implications. Interesting. Both of those sound like they'll be wonderful presentations, and uh, we will be very glad to have you both in the flesh. Uh, whatever the the circumstances are for the uh, wider audience, however much of it is uh, digital or in person, uh, whatever we have to do, uh, it will continue as it has for the last two years. Yeah, and I'm going to be having Oath Keepers as my security detail there, too. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Perfect. Perfect. Right, uh, gentlemen, tell everybody where they can find you guys. Uh, we'll start with you, Ren. Hey, so uh, you can find me at liminalroom.com. Um, 
I do run a, a Discord server that's focused around uh, the occult and the paranormal. So if you're interested, there's a link on themillroom.com to that. Um, yeah, drop me a line on there. And Dr. Future? Um, well, I have a book out, Two Masters, Two Gospels, Volume 1, The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaven of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News. It's at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, anywhere good books are found. My blog is the Two Spies Report. That's where some of this information came from. But there's a lot of stuff that gets into weird things, even at the Two Spies Report. Uh, .wordpress.com. Uh, if you can go there, uh, there are some discussions. I'll, I'll let a cat out of a bag, possibly coming back on the airways for some stuff. Um, but there is a Facebook page, Two Spies Report Facebook page. Um, so just type in Two Spies Report and you should find us. There'll be a lot of announcements about that and when I appear on shows and things like that. And Go subscribe, everybody, to uh, give, it, uh, give it a like, whatever that you do. To uh, Yeah, whatever it is, I don't know. But if yeah, like so is good, then do like. Spies Report Facebook page. Um, support Dr. Future and everything that he does. And, and we'll, we'll have, as always, have you on at the end of the year um, as we're uh, – completely into the abyss um yeah there won't uh, be an end of the year yeah we'll talk. <laughs> you better plan that for like mid-october we'll talk about <laughs> we'll talk about uh i've got three four and five that are that uh parts three four and five of this uh blog series so and it gets a lot worse it does um thank you gentlemen uh hold on the line for us because i think we're going to do a patreon segment um as we said, come join us October 15th through 17th in Nashville, Tennessee at Strange Realities Conference. Are also online. That is an option as well. Everything that we are going to be doing is going to be uh, broadcast online. So that's uh, $70 for the in-person ticket. Three days. $30 for the uh, online only ticket. Yeah, just well. want to reiterate that's going to be three solid days of presentations. Yep. Starting what what night. cryptocurrencies do you all accept for that? Uh, we're going to accept uh, the conspiracy normal cryptocurrency that we're going to. I believe Eventbrite may accept Bitcoin. I'll look that up right now. Let's see. <laughs> what about just script? If I write just script, we're only going to accept Cougar Cougarans. Uh, no desert, no Deseret currency. <laughs> nice. Deseret okay. dollars. And also, uh, Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash If you want to support the show, Sergio can tell you what we have there. You can join our association of conspiranormalists for $5 a month and get a weekly Patreon-only episode, as well as secret communications from the heads of the order, me and Adam, as well as the Ascended Masters, who we report to, for $10 a month, uh, you can join our Mystic Crew. And if you want to know what they do in the Mystic Crew, we're going to start sharing some of that with you guys soon. We're going to actually have an open uh, attendance Mystic Crew for anybody who wants to join. Uh, that's going to be coming up soon. And Adam is actually going to be giving a presentation at that. Uh, so in the Mystic Crew, we uh, kind of have a mini strange realities every month where we have people present cutting edge research and presentations, and it serves as our own little think tank and incubator for uh, people as they develop their their ideas or talk about their experiences. 
um, it's something really special and I hope we can share that with more people and kind of give people a better idea of what we actually do in that. Uh, for $20 and up, you can join the ancient circle of strange realities and uh, you get a exclusive garment reserved only for high initiates of that order and a secret experience at the Strange Realities Conference every year as well. So uh, that is reserved for $20 and up patrons, the most elect. And you can find all of that at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Yes. All right. All right. That's it, guys. I want to thank uh, Ren and Dr. Future for hanging out with us. And we will be back next time on Conspiranormal. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.